Um, you know, we have a special, special guest with us, Pastor Tabitha Purple, obviously with here, um, Antoine Dumas, Jason Arook, um, you know, Crosstalk, episode number five. We made it to number five, man. Whoop, whoop. Uh, so that's a big deal. Uh, last time we tried to uh, to start something, this time last year, I think it was, right? Yeah, but I was in the Netherlands. Yeah, it wasn't happening. I think we tried two times. It didn't work out. We let it go. <laughs> but, um, you know, we're, we, we've made it to episode number five. We're excited about this one. This is going to be about church hurt. And um, we have somewhat of an expert on church <laughs> uh, with us in Tabitha Purple. Uh, Jason, I, I'm sure you have an introduction you'd like to give for her. I'm sure, you know, as a friend, <laughs> and as a, um, a, a fellow refugee, um, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm, or as a big brother, we can do that and, one. How about yeah, that? Big brother, yeah. Go ahead, man. That's oh, fine. Um, so I, Tabitha, in all honesty, is from a professional standard one of the very best pastors I know. Mm. The way she structures, manages her churches, cares for her people, develops. Everything, I mean, she's she's not a dictator, but you're not running over her mm. at all. She teaches other people how to be ministers. Mm. She can, that, that's what she's always done from, from Britain forward. She teaches other people how to be effective ministers, right? When I got to the Netherlands, I would meet with her at least monthly, at least monthly, just to go over pastoral process right and things like that this is now that's that's just her as a professional she is she's one of the best pastors that i know and she's artsy which makes her sermons very fun then she is a devoted mother and when i say devoted the only person more devoted to their kids is clearly their husband her husband storm but she's a committed mother like she'll stop everything Church is done if one of the kids is sick. If what, something happens to get, I have to go, period. You don't like it, tough. Elder, get up and preach. Mm -hmm. She's a devoted mother, and she voraciously fights for her children. And she's doting. She is a loving wife. And if you know her storm, if you know how, how, how you know, if you know Jeremy, 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 uh, Jeremy Sidonia, her husband, you know, he, he's, he's a loving guy. But he's a big guy and he doesn't play games. You know, he's not playing. And yet she is, they work well together. I've seen them together as a team, be a team in disagreement and in harmony. And even in disagreement, you should probably stay out of the way. Mm. <laughs> Don't insert yourself in their disagreement. That's a that's a real big problem for them to be in harmony against you. Um, <laughs> um, but they, you know. She, 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 I, I have so many, I call her the kingmaker. That's what I call her. You know, um, anybody that sits with her in ministry, and I'm just speaking specifically of ministry as professional, as professional, anyone that sits with her in ministry, in any part of ministry, by the way, is better for it. Period. Period. And I don't know many male ministers that I can say that about. Wow. Honestly, I don't. Um, so that's that as a sister, she's phenomenal. Um, she, she's, 
she knows how to listen and hear and call you on your BS. And yet at the same time, she understands and appreciates what you're trying to say. You know, and she'll she'll be there, but she's not gonna let you sit around and 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 believe your own hype, and she's not gonna let you have a pity party. Like she is a phenomenal friend, a phenomenal sister, a phenomenal minister. Wow. You know, and the Dutch Union is blessed. Um, no, that's that's not no, because that means they did something to earn it. No, that's not true. They are graced to have her family in the union, to have her skill set in the union. Um, she recently, she was a third, is this the third one that we just done now? The third one? Yes. Uh, yeah. She's just yeah. taken the Dutch Union through their third iteration, weekend iteration, weekday, with how many, three, four day iteration of, mm -hmm. of addressing and um, considering racism within the context of the Dutch Union or the church, mm -hmm. which in and of itself is phenomenal if you understand that Dutch people, no disrespect to any Dutch people, but they have a very interesting and well-oiled society, mm -hmm. right? And so it, you know, there's praise for the society to suddenly begin to reflect on something that is negative. You wouldn't necessarily expect them to be able to do, especially, in, and yet here these people are sitting there third doing it for the third iteration. So um, she's, you know, I, I can go on. If you want to talk about African diaspora and understanding social justice, her grasp on it is second to none. Her grasp on it from from a global standpoint, how it how it affects Africans, how it affects the diaspora, how it affects Americans. You know, it's 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 second to none. So you know, on this point um, today, you know, I I am I am looking forward to 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 hearing her story and what she's going to share. That's awesome. That's awesome. Oh man! Oh wow! Wow! I, I, right! Right! I even I'm like okay. I didn't mean, I didn't want to start this crying today. So you know, like I know we talk about church hurt, but now you go big me up like that. I'm all like here wiping tears at the corner of my eyes, brother. Please bless you. Wow! Yeah! Yeah! That that's that's powerful. Um, Tabitha, can I call you Tabitha? Yes, of course. So um, man, I don't even know how to follow that up. That's that's a very. <laughs> specific <laughs> <laughs> you you and me both are sitting here going well that she said the thing so let's let's follow up with this point let's sure. do this so let me help you out so with the anti-racism thing so in the dutch union we're groundbreaking in terms of the seventh day adventist church there are very few church institutions now so take that to unions conferences and um to the general conference district areas uh, the divisions that are actually looking at this as a specific area and so about two years ago now two and a half years ago I went to the Dutch Union and I said listen I'm unhappy this can't stand I'm not doing this anymore we're going to do something about it and to their credit they said oh she's really not she's serious about it she's not happy about racism oh we didn't know um, and I said okay you you plan something um, and so we got the opportunity last year to put the first plan into motion and, and just happened to be during the pandemic with all that's going on with the anti-racism work with, you know, off the back of Brianna Taylor and all of those things come October, the Dutch Union sat down for the very first time in its history and looked at what does it mean to be anti-racist? What does it mean to look at diversity, inclusion and belonging? And Dr. Jason O'Rourke and uh, several others did two days with the Dutch Union and I had, to be, I had to give credit to my colleagues where credit's due. It was hard, but they did it. 
they they sat through what was a really difficult conversation culturally what was really tough because the dutch don't have the language of the diaspora the english language is so developed in this area but the dutch language isn't and so they had to sit through a lot of english and dutch lecturers talking to them about anti-racism work and so we did the first one and my colleagues came back and said well we need there's there should be more and i was like well this is it's ongoing you can't just do one and done that, that's amazing. so we that, did two and we just did three so there yeah. you go so that's the work that we're that's the work i'm involved in now and developing yeah. that so so my first well i guess there's so much background that i wanted to get from you as well before we got into it like this so we're going to just go out of order and just go with it holy spirit do your thing right um last week we i'm uh, not last week two weeks ago uh, we uncovered something that we hadn't been conscious of before in what Jason labeled male supremacy, right? Mm -hmm. um, and obviously we know very acquainted with white supremacy being black men in America. Um, versions of that coin are incredibly like injurious to us as, as believers, right? Period, right? They go 100% against the ideals of Christ, et cetera. But as it relates to church hurt, right? You know, first of all, you have those two things, male supremacy, white supremacy, none of them are mentioned in any of our prophecy, prophetic literature, right? So, so we live in the world where, you know, God is coming and he's not coming to do anything about these two things, right? But in terms of those two things, they've probably had the biggest impact on what we describe as church hurt um, today, right? If, if, if the devil's responsible for you know, uh, deceiving people and leading them out of the church, um, his two, two of his favorite tools in doing that are male supremacy and white supremacy. They won't join the church because of the church's history and imperialism and all of that. And there are people who won't join the church because of its patriarchy and how they treat women who are pregnant out of wedlock or whatever. And so um, your thoughts, on which one has had the, the bigger impact, I guess, and um, just your experience. Maybe you can even tell your, your background while answering that question. <laughs> well, I, th I think it's an interesting question because there's a presupposition in the question that these are two separate things. Mm. And that, that gender mm -hmm. inequality and race inequality can somehow be extricated from one another. They can be somehow separated. And if we deal with one, which is the fallacy that we have in the world at the moment, then, and only then, can we begin to look at the other one. The problem is, is, is that premise. The premise is, in, is a faulty premise. So now we had to go take a step back and say, okay, so what is the reality? So for the last few hundred years, colonialism has been the lingua franca it's been the thing that's dominated the world it has been european countries going in other people's countries sticking a flag in and saying this is mine going around and saying to people well we own you now we like we like the look of you we'll take you with us you know and doing that thing that's been the dominant ideology and if that's the dominant ideology what was the culture of those people that were sticking the flag in and that were taking up the people the culture of those people was that there is a class system so that's the first thing. So race and class cannot be separated. If you're fighting for race, you're fighting against class. You have to do that. Mm -hmm. And then look at the relationships that they had within gender. You can't separate them. Women in European societies were not given the vote until the 1900s. They didn't get the vote 
until as a result of actually race relations coming on. So a lot of times it was race and gender hand in hand. Race was pushing it. So white men said, oh, we've got a choice. Black people or white women? Black people or white women? Oh, we'll give white women a vote. So now remember, so this is who's going around and sticking a flag in something, are people who fundamentally believe in a class system, who fundamentally believe that there is an upper class, that there are people who belong in the lower classes. That's their fundamental belief. And then these people have the belief that women don't even come part of that society. Y'all stand pretty on the other side. And when I look at you, I can take you. And when I don't want you, I can't take you. So I have my children having a bottle fight next to me. <laughs> All right. No Y'all need to go outside and play now, please. Okay. So, you know, these are the fundamental challenges. So when you're looking at, oh, let's deal with the issue of anti-racism. Well, first I have to under unpack where did, what was the society that dominated? What were the ideas? I can't say that gender has been the bigger hurt or race has been the bigger hurt. It's an entire system. I can't separate those. So I have to then say, if you ask the question of which one has caused the most harm, all of it, the entire system needs to go up in flames. It's the system of oppression that has been in place, that has dominated our culture, that says that to this day, stateside now, and also in some European countries, to this day, people who earn the most money, people who have the most money in their bank account, don't pay taxes, don't contribute to the system, but get the biggest say on how you as poor people treat one another. There is a problem with the class system. There's a problem that empowers wealth over. And so in that conversation you guys had, you were talking, I think, I believe it was about Harry and Meghan. Mm -hmm. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about the richest in society, the people who have been born into, Harry, born into wealth, born into a position where he doesn't have to be really told to anything by anyone, suddenly being told by his own system, oh, you married the help. Hmm. That's not going to do some. And now that becomes a conversation of the working people. The working people now feel we have something to say. We don't have no rights over these people. We can't tell these people anything. They're, they're not, you know, as much as the, the, there is a nice relationship between the two, that's not how it works. They're paying taxes the way you pay in taxes. They're not subject to the same rules you're subject to. And so when you talk about which one is worse, it's an entire system that needs to be unpacked. But in order to unpack it, you have to know what that system is. And you have to go back and look at the people who did the system in the first place and say, well, now, now white people of European descent, tell us what your societies were like before you went around sticking flags and anything. Ah, those are the problems we need to get to. They're your problems, not ours. For us now who are from the diaspora, as black people, as women, as people who are living through the system, we then have a challenge because the only thing we've ever been taught in the last hundred years is their system. I've not been taught the system of my people. So now I had to get up and say, I'm either fighting against their system, which means I cannot be like them. Sexism has no place in the black community. It has no place in the brown communities. It has no place in the indigenous communities. It has no place because it wasn't there before. We had our own sexism to deal with, but it wasn't this. We had our own issues to deal with, but it wasn't this. And in liberating myself, I cannot take on the oppressor's vision. I have to take on something other. 
I need to do the research to figure out what the other is. I cannot have my freedom at the cost of your freedom and thereby making myself the colonizer and you the colonized. Mm. I have got to make that separation. Wow. And so I'm going to pass the offering plate. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know, we need to have like a cash app for that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I need to set one of those up, you know, because truly. <laughs> oh no, please do. I please. need some equipment. Like I need, yeah. I need some stuff in the house. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I, I don't know if Jason told you, but we 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 bless our guests. So, so I'll bless you. <laughs> um, Thank you. Let me let me follow up. Let me ask you this. So, in terms of um, they're inseparable. I never thought of that. That's that's very insightful. Thank you for sharing. In fact, in fact, I would yeah. even if I can let me just say this to that point. I because Tab is right. I suspect that the idea that they are separable perpetuates the problem. I'm yeah. sure it does. Yes, yes. absolutely. It's like so playing two against this? middle. Right, and you see this the most in the feminism discussion. So there's something that you guys will probably as men see from the outside, but as a woman, I see this the most in the feminism discussion. So what will happen is um, women will stand up for something, but who's invited to the table? White women. So who gets the loudest voice? White women. And in the last five years, particularly the last two, you have now begun to see the tables turn because it's black women doing the graft and white women going, hey, look at what we did. Look at how wonderful we are. Look at what, look at us over here. We, we did this thing. And the tables are beginning to turn and you're seeing more and more white women come out and say, hold on, something is wrong with how we are fighting feminism. So I think it was two weeks ago, I cannot remember the actress's name, but she said, if we are only fighting for more privilege, then we're not real feminists. Mm -hmm. If we are not fighting the cause of every woman, and every woman is the black and brown woman. Remember that because she has her privilege up at the table. Mm -hmm. So every is for the black, brown, indigenous people of the world. If we are not fighting their cause and raising their standard, then we're not feminist and we're not raising up that point. And I think that what it does is it's the class system. What did their society look like? They held the power and they removed the poor people. They remove the women and they pit them against each other. And as you keep doing that, of course, we're locked into now a discussion about whether whether white people and, and black women should be working together at the table to fight against feminist issues. No, I need to be squarely concentrated on the system of power that is oppressing both you and I. You're not my enemy. And the quicker you get to realizing that, the quicker we're gonna resolve this problem. My problem is not with you. My problem is with the system. And until I start focusing on the system, until all of us start going, oh, there's a systemic issue here. Let's focus on that and start dismantling it. And that may mean burning down capitalism. It may mean taking down the whole, you know, the whole house of cards. It may mean all of those things. But what it means is that we have got to identify the system. So could you, because you, before we got started, before we went live, you kind of shared a, a portion of your, your story of church hurt, right? Because you're the church hurt expert, right? <laughs> yeah, apparently. So, I didn't know that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so if, um, if you could almost retell that story through the lens of everything you just described, mm. how the tentacles of this system has been on you and almost stopped you from even being where you are, what you're called to do today. 
Yeah, that's interesting. So I guess I think that that's a really good way of framing it. And I like that. So I'm going to try my best to stick yeah, it in that. Absolutely. Let me see. I like that way of framing it. So how do race, class and gender play out in an everyday life? especially for someone who then comes from a faith background, which is impacted by race, class and gender. Those things are a part of the norm. Um, if you're a Christian from a non-denominational background of Seventh-day Adventist, so if you're not from a Seventh-day Adventist, but you're non-denominational, you're Methodist or something else, you will have your own iterations. But there's something in the UK, um, especially among the diaspora, especially among people that the Seventh-day Adventists were new, known for education. Okay, they're known for being educated people, they're known for having the highest literacy rates, the highest rates of degrees, etc. And so um, anyone who comes into that system steps up. You know, you come into the, the Adventist system and you're going to step up. University becomes an option. You know, churches sponsor kids to go to universities. There's all sorts of programs that happen. But what happens if you come in and you're not from and you are now coming into a system which says that everything about you is not what we want. Mm. Okay. So what you will have, and I'm going to take it real back to before my time. So I'm not a born and raised Adventist. I'm a convert. Before my time in the UK, um, there are historical issues around race. Of course, the UK being a predominantly white country, European country, even though they left Europe, apparently you can do that. Who knew? I'm still bitter about Brexit, don't worry. It'll, it'll be said more than once. These people are getting on my nerves with Brexit, honestly. I mean, mind myself, this is not the conversation today. So when you look at these historical issues, I'm gonna just tell you like some anecdotal things. So historical issues, uh, predominantly white environment. So when Windrush happens, lots of black people coming over from the islands, lots of people coming over from Jamaica and Barbados and Trinidad and Tobago, and they're coming with Adventism. So they go to their local Adventist churches, which do what turn them away no blacks no irish no dogs that's the sign that goes on to every door no blacks no irish no dogs so if you think that white people like white people it's a myth so if you heard me say no irish you'd be like isn't that part of britain no blacks no white no irish are they white people there's a history but we're not going to do that today we're going to stick with the subject so that you go to these environments and they were turned away they were rejected if they were accepted in you had to be conforming to the way that this society does it so of course there's a challenge there is a head-on challenge you're having educated people come from the caribbean doctors nurses um people who are building the railroads who are rebuilding the country after the war doing all of this skilled educated labor that's and, and very much an adventist thing educate learn a trade do the do the work go in and be faithful right these are faith-based people and the churches are saying you are not welcome here so they set up their own churches they employ their own pastors they begin to do that but then they also begin to grow so of course we're becoming big enough to take over your building because you know you gave us sabbath school now we could, now we're enough to take over the whole building now what you're going to do and so there is this friction that happens because what we have and what we want are two different things. What I have is I have a British system that has power, that has economy, that I, I, I want all of this. I want my whiteness to remain. What I am seeing come in is not reflective. And so there is this historical tension. But because the people coming in are busy with the fight to get recognized, they're, you're busy, right? You're busy with the fight. I need my rights. I'm trying to, to get it. You're adopting the same system that they have. 
you're not changing the system, you're fighting to be recognized within the system. So you fast forward decades to the child's of a single parent living on a council estate from inner city ghetto London goes into her local church and you are looked down upon because you're not from a two-parent family you're not your mother hasn't graduated university yet she does go on to do that but she's not graduated yet she's not educated enough for the people they don't look at her life story they don't look at her life history they don't see where how smart she is or in get no that's not how we treat you we treat you as what we see single parent council estate that's like projects ghetto outskirts marginalized people for the for the americans who are not from london of course and don't know the council estate slang um and they see three girls and it's a black woman with a daughter who looks like me and two other little brown kids and mm. i'm the odd one out mm. there's a problem with the picture and we don't like it and so at first comes the joy that you've accepted Jesus and you're coming into the seventh day Adventist. We are the truth. We are the light. We are the ones who hold the thing. But then you meet the system mm. and the system is different from the truth. Wow. You see, I was celebrated when I came into the church because I was the kid in the Bible study class who was like, I have a question. I have a question. Every time the pastor was talking, I have a question. And literally at my baptism, he was like, I have never had anyone ask me as many questions as this young lady. She made me study because every week she would plague me with questions <laughs> every week. Now as a pastor, I understand the torture I put him through, bless him. But at the time, I was just like, I had a question. And I was celebrated because that was the right thing in Adventism, to ask questions, to be educated, to learn the Adventist system. But when the system came and slapped me in the rear end, then we had a problem because you cannot be above my kid who comes from a two-parent household with educated parents. You can't oh, yes. date my oh, yes. child. You yes. can't date the eldest son. You can't be, he can't fancy you. That's inappropriate because you oh. are beneath him mm. because you're this. And so began the, mm -hmm. the vitriol. Mm -hmm. You go amount to nothing. You know, people who come from these communities will know what happens. If you are a single parent kid, you go, you, you just go sleep with men and end up on a council estate with babies. You just got amount to nothing. Who are you? Blah, blah, blah. Who are you to come up and tell me? And all I was doing was exactly the same thing, but now from within the system. When mm. I was outside the system and you're trying to pull me in, oh, that's celebrated. That's the right thing. You're coming to the truth. You're coming to the goodness. You're coming on the side because of course, that's the Christian is beginning to be upholded. But the system that never changed, the system that held the people back when black people came in is the same system of class that then holds back the single parent, that holds back the minority, that holds back the kid who grew up on the council estate who doesn't have access to education. It holds that same child back and says, you aren't enough to have a voice in our church. And so at a certain point when it got, it got rough, I'll be honest, I lost all my friends at like 15 years old. I was called out. Some guy had made up a story that I was coming on to him and I was trying to sleep with him or whatever. And I never, my mama would have killed me. Listen, let me tell you something. I wasn't allowed to date till I was 18. She would have bust my behind if she heard me near a boy. So there was no sleeping with nobody. My mama knew where I was from 
every hour of that day when pray tell could I have done it because she would have found out hello somebody who grew up in a strict Caribbean household my mom's from Barbados she will end you she will cut you boy doing what with who with my daughter no I remember kissing a boy kissing a boy at like 15 16 and actually thinking I was going to die because my mum would find out I never kissed a boy after that for another three years it was trauma trauma. (laughs) that's a different conversation for another time right Mm. but um you grew up in a strict religious household you grew up in a system of oppression that doesn't recognize that it's bought into a system, that it's upholding values that are not Christ-like. And then it turns on the 15-year-old girl and calls her all manner of names to the point that I said, okay, I'm walking out, I'm leaving, I'm not coming back. And I left my home church and I walked away and I said, that's it, I'm done. And I went and stayed by my grandma. I didn't even stay at home. I stayed by my grandma the whole summer. I was like, forget this. Jesus, if those are your people, and you can keep them because I want them but my grandmother's a praying grandmother right we all have those praying grandmothers my, mm. my grandmother's a praying grandmother so she's not playing with me church was going to be a part of your life whether you like it or not mm-hmm. um, and so that's that's the first iteration for me is is really growing up in in an environment which the society told me you're nothing but when I got to church at first I was celebrated because you know, my mom is academic. She's very much pushing me on study. She's very much, this is what you do. And at first that's celebrated. But when it steps too close to what is the perfect norm, the pushback was real. When it steps too close to this is what the society expects of you. And this is how you should have come from. Girls from single parent families on council estates who look like you, which is not like your own mama. So clearly there's an issue there. It's not like you don't look like your sisters. So clearly there was some promiscuity there. Hello. Then that's what it is. Not knowing that all my family look like this. We're all multicolored. Hello. If you've ever, and the irony, right? Is you've got black people who know that their own family look like an array of colors telling a black single woman that because your family looks like an array of colors, we're going to talk about your sexuality. We're going to talk about who you are. And then we're going to make a judgment about a 15 year old girl based on that. And we're going to have her almost assaulted by one of the church boys as a result. We're going to have the people talking about her, her friends turn on her and isolate her so much that you could actually end up, but for the grace of God, go I, that nothing really serious happened at that time. Right? So me, that's uh, the environment. Let me just add this just in now that, and now this is not, ladies and gentlemen, this is not the full story of Tabitha. She's going to give you, but I just want, but as she talks about walking away, I want to read just some, some statistics here. Um, at, at one on one um, on one site that I'm at, it says there are nine reasons why people will leave Christianity. Um, one is parents in a home where only one parent participant participates in religion, or it's not highly reinforced. Child will leave, you know, by and large. Education, right? Education. The higher up in education you go, the more you are exposed. A lot of people will leave Christianity due to exposure to other cultures and religions. That's the third. A loss of belief, misfortune is tied to the experience of pain or death. Right. That's the fourth. Friends, colleagues, or lovers. So certain relationships can take you away from from Christianity. Politics. Um, embracing a progressive ideology and being turned off by the religious right. Now, in that in that view, there's a book out by a gentleman named Robert called White Too Long, in which he just, just states 
point blank that if you want to understand, if you want to be able to, that the singular greatest identifier of a racist is, are they Christian? Mm. The single greatest identifier is, are they Christian? I will continue. Um, um, sex. How we talk about sex in the church is the reason that people leave the church. Um, um, <clears throat> we don't, we don't, we don't appreciate desire. We guilt people into having the feelings and the way that the homeless, that, that, that the homosexual community is treated, um, people will leave. And then mm -hmm. the concept of Satan or hell, people can just not juxtapose. They can't, con they can't consider a loving God and the eternal hell mm -hmm. and Satan, they can't. So that's one, um, one site there. Barna, Barna has six reasons why young people leave the church. Really quick, um, the churches seem overprotective. Um, they experience their experience. It says teen, tweens and twenty-somethings experience of Christianity is shallow. They don't really have a, a, a grounding. Then it says churches come across as antagonistic to science. Okay. Then number four for Barna, young Christian churches um, experiences related to sexuality are often simplistic and ju judgmental. So young people are saying, "Listen, this conversation of sexuality is multifaceted." And the church's explanation is just a little bit too simple and judgmental. And then uh, five, they wrestle with the exclusive nature of Christianity. So Christianity seems to exclude people. Mm -hmm. You know, that's that's what they're saying. And then the last one, church feels unfriendly to those who doubt. So if you have any questions at all, mm. the church may not be the place for you. That's what people are saying as to why they leave. And so I'm just throwing those nine plus six on the back, you know, as the, you know, the framework of a lot of yeah. what, uh, uh, Pastor T Tabitha has described in her experience, half of which she experienced. Yeah. Yeah. So what's interesting about the list is the other list. So why do people stay? So mm -hmm. this is the, so when they do these surveys, they ask, well, were you a Christian? Did you leave the church? What made you leave the church? And oftentimes people will recall theological differences. That's the main thing that they will recall. But the question is, why do people stay? So of course, a lot of times there's familial friends, um, cultural reasons, um, their understanding and love of God comes in there. But all of those reasons are the real reasons that people leave. Why do I leave? I leave because I don't have a good relationship with my family. Either they felt hypocritical or they felt... So what the survey doesn't do is doesn't give you this part of the picture, the relational part, because most people will not tell you the relational part. Mm -hmm. But we all know, we all have experience, and I'm, I'm now a pastor of, of three churches, so I know, and I, I've been in this game for long enough to know, why have people left the church? Not because they disagree with my theology, it's because they don't like the people. They had a fight, they had a disagreement, they felt isolated, someone treated them bad. Why did I leave the church twice? Because people treated me badly, I didn't want to be a part of a system. I liked God, but you people were just not for me. So oftentimes what you find is people who leave Christianity, especially if they have a faith basis, especially if they have an actual faith basis, they will be drawn to other iterations. They become Baha'i. They become spiritual, not religious. They, be they become something else because what they need is the spiritual. What they need is the loving community. What they didn't find in the system of Christianity that we have in most Western countries is an iteration of that that was without the prejudice of the system of the world that's oppressing them. 
that's the reality because when you go into your regular workplaces people say oh it's more friendly when I'm out in the work because you're working with people who are at the same level as you cross over to somebody else's territory so you as a lawyer go cross over into the political world are they friendly to you go cross over into the dustbin workers world are they friendly to you if the dustbin worker world comes and you know comes into the the lawyers world are they friendly to you no but at church all of those people sit in one room and they have the same ideology oh my they are raised in the same ideology and they sit in the same room and all of that gets played out in church the wow. elder who has no position outside in the world is suddenly an elder and then thinks, I have power. But how has he seen other people play out power? Mm. He's seen them play out power by being a bullish, bully, challenging, picking mm. on people. That's how he's seen it. Mm. So he doesn't want to be like that because he knows that's how he felt. He felt bad, but he doesn't know another way mm. because that is the system that he is Ooh. in. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm having a moment. I'm having a moment. Oh, this is good. This is and you so in in the type in the title that you chose, uh, Antoine, with PTSD, mm -hmm. to understand PTSD as a physiological response to trauma. The the other side of PTSD is moral injury, and and moral injury is the psychological. It is the emotional injury when a moral when a moral or ethical standard has been breached. And a trust has been has been lost. So we've got the church filled with people that are either having physiological traumatic responses to mm -hmm. abuse, or they're walking around with a moral injury or in moral distress or fatigue mm -hmm. because there has been an ethical or moral breach of trust. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm. And so then, and then what do you do? Do you have people in place that actually do the counselling? No. no. Do you train your pastors that they should? ensure they have master's level counseling skills? No. Do you give in the institution an unpacking of, if we stand against the world, if we don't want to be secular, then we should have a training that's robust enough to handle the world coming in and unpacking it and re-educating the people and giving them a new system. No, we just have how many layers of, of, of authority? We have the conference, yeah. we have the union, we have the division, we have the general conference. And that, I mean, in some countries you have the lay advisory and you have the this and the that before you even get to so the I'm leaders. Gonna, I'm gonna make a deduction and I want you to tell me if this is fair. Um, okay, go ahead. Everything you've been saying. If, unless I am privileged within the system, race, class, gender in the world. If I come into the church, um, at some point the church is almost institutionally likely to hurt me in some way. They gonna get you. And without the safeguards in place to heal me afterwards. That's deep. Yeah. So you see strongholds of power, but you see this. So you see strongholds of power. So where I'm from, um, we have strongholds of power. So we have places where um, the tables have, what some people would say is the tables have turned. So you have people of color that are in power. That's what they would, that's how they would describe it. Okay. So the, the church is predominantly from a diaspora perspective. 
that's the large part of the membership. And so the power structure reflects that. There are leaders that are in that. And so they would say, most of them would say, no, I'd, I don't have that experience down here. I, I don't have that because we're in power. But the system's getting you because you're behaving in exactly the same way as the oppressor. So your, your ability to empathize is being worn away. Your ability to have compassion is being worn away. Your ability to look at people fairly is being worn away. Your ability to share power is being worn away because you're now, I have to keep power. So when another diaspora group comes in, Mm -hmm. let's say Polish people, Russian people, mm -hmm. African nations come in, you're thinking about how to keep your stronghold of power. Mm -hmm. Whose mentality is that? Yeah. That is the colonial structures mentality. Yeah. It is not the church system. The church acts, book of the Bible, is not based on power. It's based on community. It's based on giving. It's based on mutual fellowship. It's based on small groups. So when you are part of a system and you think, well, I'm doing, no, what Tabitha said doesn't affect me. How have you treated your female colleagues? How have you treated the minorities in your hand? And I will tell you, you've behaved in very similar ways, if not exactly the same as those who oppress you and outside they, of the they're church. They're behaving in the same way towards threats, perceived threats, and also to perceived allies. So yeah. if the higher class individual, the higher net worth individual, or the male enters the church, they're going to be welcomed with open arms, regardless of who's in charge, because the system um, appreciates those people. The church then appreciates those people. This, this is this. I did not expect all of this at all. My God, this is amazing. Um, ah, wow. Um, there's a lot of things you said. Also, um, you. I don't know if you knew, said this on purpose, but you said your. Um, you great grew up. The, your basically, you said that your re religious households um, almost equates to the system of oppression. Um, so you use the two words interchangeably, right? Um, growing up in a religious household or growing up in the system, and it was almost synonymous. Um, did you mean to say that? Um, do you think the two have um, similar impacts on, on people growing up? I think there is a historical religiosity, okay? And I think that historical religiosity is built and based in systems of oppression. And I would find and struggle to separate those. But what I will say is that there is a heart that comes into it. So there is a difference. There is a difference. I grew up in a religious household. I grew up in a faith-based household. I didn't survive my childhood without Jesus. Like I, we survived on the grace and goodwill of God. Literally, I could tell you story after story of how we managed to get through life because God is good and kept our chin above water, kept our minds ticking over, developed us as people. I know that. There is the heart of what we're talking about, but there is the system. And the system of religion in the 21st century is steeped birth bathed in the history of supremacy in the history of colonialization and so therefore there is a pain if you have managed to grow up in a religious household and you don't carry some kind of trauma i want to come sit down with your parents and find out how they did it like seriously because a lot of people did not up until the last few decades begin to do the work of unpacking this because and it's not their failing 
Now, hear me really well. I'm not blaming our parents because I think that's the wrong attitude to have. They were busy fighting for their life. They don't have time to be unpacking all the crap and baggage that came with their religion. Their religion was carrying them through, dealing with the man in the workplace who was trying to get them out, dealing with the landlord who wouldn't give them a place to stay with their children, dealing with all of the crap that they were enduring in the system outside. The church was the safe place. But now the outside world has become a little bit easier to deal with. We turn back and look at the church and we're like, hold on, y'all are damaging us. This, this theology is poorer. Like, I've got time to deal with this now. So when I say that, I'm not saying that as a criticism of that, the, the generation before mine. I'm saying that as an acknowledgement for the work they did to ensure that we are in this position to be able to say, okay, hang on. This religious system that has abused the single parent, this is not good. That's not what Jesus would have wanted. That's not what we see in the Bible. We need to unpack our ideas and views about sexuality. Okay, this religious system that says if you're an elder, you're somehow above everybody else and no one can speak to you. That's not what Jesus would have wanted. He was, in fact, about dismantling power. Okay, we need to look at that. This religious system that we have that makes people feel like they're less than, that doesn't empower them to go and be their best selves, that's not what Jesus wanted. We're supposed to be the divine image of God. So if we're all the divine image of God, I should not be coming into church feeling like my sins are going to get me and God is going to strike me down where I sit. That's not how I should feel. But my parents, your parents, our parents across the globe didn't have time to deal with that because when they were trying to breathe, somebody said they couldn't have a home. When they were trying to get their kids educated, not in our school, the kids don't have books, the kids don't have access. They had other battles that they were trying to survive their life. So when they came to church and they got to sing and let that out, church was a safe haven. But it is still part of the same system that oppresses. And now that the, the chains, should I say it like that, have been relinquished a little bit in the world, now I have time to turn around and go, Okay, we need to clean up church too. Now we just need to add you to the list. Like y'all need to do, we need to clean house. This needs to be a thing that we do. But up until now, we haven't been free enough to be able to do that. Wow, amen. So now, now Deb, so you left. Now you left twice. Yeah. Oh yeah, finish right. the story. Yeah. Right, you left twice. <laughs> we, I mean, no, I mean, and this is how we do, you know. I, I feel like definitions are good for people to understand what we're talking about. That's why I, I interjected. But you left. And then you came back. Yeah. No, that, no, no, that's not what I want to say. I don't want to say it that way. You left and then you returned. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so you returned. Tell, talk about that return. Well, first of all, we, we're, what's the distinction, Jason, between left well, and came back? According and to her, she left. That's what this word she used 10 minutes ago. She left. She said she No, I mean, be, between returning between and, returning and, and right. coming back. Well, right. Well, so so to come back, so the, the, the idea of coming back, coming back puts me here and her over there. And that's not what I'm trying to say. You know, come back, come back to it. It implies that I'm here and you're over there. And I'm not trying to have that. That's not what I'm trying to say. This is her journey and I'm not in it. Mm. You understand what I'm saying? So, <laughs> oh, yes, sir. True. You understand what I'm saying? So right. she went on a journey where she left where she was and then she returned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, 
And I'm listening yeah. to the story, like talk about this return or whatever that is and the experiences mm -hmm. after that, which apparently are not the greatest still. <laughs> yeah, we haven't got to the other two. Those are fun, or three. Anyway, so we'll move on in the story and with the whole backdrop of <laughs> colonialization and the impact. Yes. So how did I return? Well, I returned because we're from a God-fearing family. Like, regardless of the denomination we serve, we, my mother instilled in us that God is real, no matter what no church people say. Now, you had to understand that my mom is from the Caribbean. She's a Black woman from Barbados. She grew up with two Pentecostal grandparents who were both the leaders of their church so one was the pastor and the other one when he died took over so you're talking about a very religious faith-given household and she grew up with the fundamental belief that God is not in this is not above the system he's not outside of the system somewhere that he's in everything so the system is what the system is and God's trying to fix it he's outside of the system trying to save you he's everywhere so no matter where you are he's trying to save you but she had a baby without getting married. She had me and the church wasn't a safe place for her. Her family wasn't a safe place for her, but God always was. And so she raised me with that, that the church might not be a safe place for you, Tabitha. It's not gonna love you. It's not gonna appreciate you because you're from a single parent family. You are the statistic, you are the failure. You are the one that stands apart. You are the young black women have babies outside of marriage. You are it. You are the one. You are the result of that. And so the system won't love you, but God will. God will does not see any of that. So I grew up on the stories of the Bible, of the marginalized, of the people that weren't seen. She told me those stories, the same stories that people from the diaspora cling to for freedom. You know, it's the same stories of Moses. It's the same story of the woman at the well. It's the same story. Those stories where God sees us of Hagar and those people in the Bible. So when I had to, when I finished that summer of being hurt, my mom was like, you feeling better now? You got all your cry out? You done? <laughs> so Sabbath is coming where you go in church. Yeah. <laughs> where you go in. And so I went to the biggest church in London and I hid I would come into the church, I would sit down, and as soon as that man got to say his prayer, I was like packing up my stuff, and I was running out the door. By the time the man said amen and turned to do benediction of what, I was gone at the bus stop ready to go home. And I did that for like a year, a year and a half or something. I was just like in and out, because you go to church, you go and worship God, it's important. And you don't do it because of the other people you're sitting with it. You do it because of who God is. And so I did that for for yeah a couple of years in my latter, latter end of the teens until somebody decided they'd seen me do it one too many times. The pretty girl keeps leaving. So we're going to run after her, young man, obviously. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're going to track her down at the bus stop because she must be going somewhere. And so this young man decided he was going to track me down. And I just gave him the please leave me alone look. And I carried on my way. And they just kept doing that because, of course, young men are persistent when they see a pretty girl. They don't let that go. We did not at that point in history teach our young men that when the girl said no, she meant no. So we, we're only learning that now. So they would be persistent. And in some ways, praise God, they were persistent because I had a nice church life for a while there. Um, and that, that's how I, I came back the first time. It wasn't to do really with it was my mother saying, so where are you going to church? And I would take my sisters along with me who are younger than me and we would go to church and I would sit and I would be on the outside and I would just watch 
because you know if you sit in the back of a church and you watch you know you, well, you yeah. know you can see everybody you know what these people are up to you miss Sabbath school so you know how to get in a discussion and then you come in just at that point and you leave just afterwards you know who's who you know where they're sitting you know how they walk down the aisle you can see them who's got yeah. power who hasn't who in the structure you know yeah. the elder gets up you're <laughs> like i know i know your kids i know your family i know what kind of mess you've been getting into you know you sit yeah. in the church long enough you know so i knew so when i started actually participating in church again and leading out and doing things again um i was in a good place you know, it was a nice place. I felt confident that, you know what, the church will hurt me at some point, but it'll be okay. But I did not expect the hurt I had. Mm. And this is about the collision of gender and of sexuality. So, of course, as a young woman, I'm trying everything. My mum has taught me to do the double back, the pepper spray, the hold your keys in your hand, don't mm. walk late, the everything. You know, I've been taught the whole nine yards of how to protect yourself. The one thing she didn't teach me is how to protect myself fully from church guys and church guys are a different breed when they're of the predatory variety mm. um, they they operate in ways that you that's a whole show in and of itself but it is a problem not mm. all church guys are predatory but when there are predatory guys in your church mm. we need to equip our women we need to equip the church we need to equip the men on how to call it out and send it out but my mom was a fighter. She was never going to let me go down in flames. So she taught me something. She taught me the rule of how you um, handle a complaint you have against a church member. So I got taught the biblical rule. If you have a problem with somebody, you go tell the person. So when you come to me and this, this gentleman who stalked me for a year and a half, um, when he first started stalking, um, I was afraid. I was scared. I would lock myself in workplaces. I was just constantly watching myself my yeah it was tearing my life apart um but he would call me his spiritual wife this man was older married with children who's your spiritual what are you talking about i was 20 20 years old 21 years old who are you talking to what is wrong with you you're a grown man with kids with a wife who's your what so when that all began um i i was afraid a lot of times i spent afraid if I'm honest, and it's not something I like to admit to, but I spent a lot of years just scared that he would do something or he would get me in some way, shape or form. I didn't want to be alone a lot. Um, and during my early 20s, I just felt very vulnerable all the time. I was very cautious. I was, I was, it was beginning to affect me. At first, I could just put it off and then it was beginning to affect everything about me, like to the point that he had come up to me, he had figured out where I worked and I worked on the other side of London. It's like living in a big city like New York and you work on the other side and somebody come into your workplace out of the blue and, you know, as a woman, it just freaked me out. I worked in a secure facility at the school that I worked in, but I was freaked out because he had found me. Mm -hmm. And so I took it to the pastor. And he spoke to him and I had to sit in what was a humiliating situation for me. I have a youngest, my youngest sister is six years younger than me. And I'd always been the tough, strong older sister, but I needed someone to go with me. And I didn't have anyone else but my sister. And I asked her if she would go with me. And she sat in shock as she watched her sister crumble. I was afraid. The pastor sat there with him and his wife told him he was out of order, that he needed to leave me alone. And this man began to expound on, you know, why he was not going to leave me alone. His wife then was like, come on, you know, you should leave her alone. And I was crumbling. 
I was shaking. I was like, I was just a mess sat there. And my sister watched her eldest sister, the person who was the toughest, strongest girl in the world, crumble. It didn't end there. And I had to actually file charges against him. Um, but when I filed the charges. Time out. The pastor tells him he's out of line. And he begins, wife. his wife says, leave her alone. And he begins to wax eloquent on why he's not going to? Yeah, the conclusion of the conversation was that he agreed to stop. He listened to the pastor, he listened to his wife, he agreed to stop. Um, but he didn't, because he had no intention of stopping. He had made a decision. He's a predator. He's, he was a destructive person, you know, and destructive people will do what destructive people need to to get their own way, right? Mm. And we can talk about the psychology of whether he was a sociopath or a narcissist or a psychopath. I don't, neither here nor there to me, quite frankly. In my 20-something-year-old state, I was a mess, having to deal with something that I wasn't equipped to deal with. I wasn't prepared to sit down and have him and his wife and my pastor sit there with my younger sister and have to tell somebody to leave me alone. Like, it my brain couldn't process what was happening. I couldn't process what was happening. It was too much. You know, how does somebody do that? How does somebody cause that much craziness in your life cause me to feel so bad? But he's sitting with his wife. The pastor's right there. Like, what? what is that? You know, so, and there is something dysfunctional about the way we t treat sexuality as a result of this historical issues on gender, historical issues on on race, historical issues, on how we treat these subjects, because there are problems when it comes to the one-on-one -on -one of how we manage it. There are problems in the system. I should never have been in that room. Mm. I should never have been in the room. But because I had to hold up the evidence, because I was the evidence, because you had to come in there, because we don't treat the victim like a victim. We treat them as if they, they need to justify their case. Mm. Now, unluckily for him, of course, I'm a business background and business major. So I have evidence. Like I had folders, of evidence. <laughs> like I had reports and everything, every letter, every, everything. I had the whole thing and I had, but I had to sit there and do it myself. No one was going to do that for me. And so when time came to file charges, people turned against me, you know, file charges on your church brother. Why didn't you talk to him? He's not serious. Like, why did you do that? And he ended up pleading guilty and, and I don't know what happened after that. He, I had to go to the court and, and present my case and whatnot. Um, so I don't know, but I had, I left the church at that point. It was too much. It was too difficult. I couldn't, how was I supposed to sit there? We're going to the same church. He had, an, he had a restraining order so that he couldn't be within a certain radius of me, but we're going to the same church. He's not going to stop coming. They told him he had to, he wouldn't stop. I can sit where I want to sit. I'm going to sit within this much of her. I'm going to go and speak to her if I want to that kind of behavior, but no one else at that point, we didn't have me to. I didn't have hashtags to join into. I didn't have a network of people who were gonna support me. All it was was me saying, this is wrong. And then filing the charges and going down to the police station frequently every time we turned up, calling the police out and having to do that. But bear in mind, I was struggling with this because of course, I grew up in inner city London. You don't call police on your own. Like even outside of the church, there's a black guy. I don't know, what am I, what are you doing? But I need to survive, I need to live. I don't need you to kill me one day. So I'm gonna have to do what I have to do. And I had to deal with the guilt of all that is going on with the church turning its back and saying, you should never have filed the charges in the first place. And so 
that's how I left. I didn't leave the church. I left that church because I couldn't stay. It wasn't safe. There wasn't an environment for me to be there. And all the pastors I knew were saying it was wrong to file charges. Nobody was saying it was okay. Everyone was saying it was the wrong thing to do. I didn't. So I didn't leave church as such. I left that space and I took my time to find a space that was safe. But I didn't resume activities the same way. When the reaction across the board is so um, negative and so consistently negative, right? It's not individual people um, taking sides. It's the system putting you in your place um, for speaking out against these things, for not just enjoying the attention, for not um, for 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 snitching on your own, right? We're already battling the people out there. You, you know, you coming out here within your own. So it's the system that lashed back at you for wanting to exercise your peace and and your freedom. That's, that's powerful. And the the church again, as an arm of the system, right? Is is inflicting the heart. Wow. Yeah. So my so, face, so, I have the screw face right now because I see you. <laughs> no, because because you didn't, you've never known this part of my story. And and for me, I it 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 is very currently in today's time, it's very hard to hear. And I'll tell why. Um, one because I know you and I love you guys, you know, like my family. But two because I survived stalking with my, when, you know, in a family situation, not me, but a family member survived stalking. We went through that. And so I know what that's like from, from my position in relationship to this person. And so that, that, so, so, so you have, so you have the, because that's traumatic. You have the PTSD thing of Mm -hmm. that, of the response to the stalking. And then you have the moral injury of mm. the fact that your leadership let you down. You know, the church leadership did not, fun- they betrayed trust from a moral and ethical standard at some level, you know. And then you had your own struggle of the tension of your moral or ethical responsibility to not turn in another person of color. Mm-hmm. Okay. So just to be it's very clear, no, I mean, it's, 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 it is. It's it a is. lot on the plate. Of a young well, person who was only 23 at the time. It's a lot and, of sitting and, there. And, and so I just want, and so yes, and how many others of us yeah. have similar experiences? Yeah. Specifically, yeah. specifically. Or pressures, pressures and experiences. Precisely, precisely. Specifically yeah. women in the church, you know. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's all, that's what's going on in my brain. Please, please continue. Yeah, so we have that. I eventually come back into the church, but not in the same way. Like how, I found how, a place. How eventually? How many years is it eventually? Um, it took me a couple of years to start attending again regularly. I and would attend, you know, what occasionally. Were you, what were you doing in the meantime? Because you mentioned people of faith have a need to be attached to a community of faith. I, I would just stay home and chill. I would be with friends. I would do all of those things that that required rest you didn't Um, didn't replace you just repealed (laughs) yeah I just I kind of just built up my own faith in that time and just tried to find my own ways um and just find yeah the 
the way that I could move within that my faith basis I tried to figure out how I was in my relationship with God I found my independence with him during that period because my relationship with God was always kind of codependent with my mom and different issue altogether but I found kind of my rhythm with God at that time and so when I started attending again I attended cautiously Mm. I didn't I didn't do any activities I didn't lean and lead anything I didn't let my talents be shown I didn't do anything like that Mm. um so I kind of just had a pause uh it, it lasted a while is it right if I just take a one second break? I just need to, to step out for a second. No problem. So, you guys that. talk to each other for a second. I just need to step out for one second. I love that. Go sure, ahead. of Go course. Ahead. Go ahead. Absolutely. Please. Please. Absolutely. Don't forget, yeah. Um, Jason, man. Woo! This is good, man. Well, it is, but it it's it's this is a hard word to hear. Yeah. Because it was a hard experience. I it's not hard for me to hear it. It's hard to hear her experience and understand what I'm saying. And to know her and to know that this was her experience is hard. Mm. It's hard. Given the intro that you did, being being strong, being a supporter, being a leader, being all these different, to be in a position where you're being victimized like that. That's absolutely big difference. Absolutely. And to, and and here's here is. Here, here is the thing that that drags me all the time. I expect all of this not in the church. Why is that? What, because I'll because the, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. And and so and I'm a hypocrite for saying it because I'm historically part of the problem. I admit it. I'm part of the problem. I I I was born into a church into this church, into a culture that believes in, in the idea of integration, right? And, and, and the idea of integration, listen, you can integrate buses, you can integrate workspaces, but culturally, because that's really what it is, we, we tried to integrate culturally an ideology into them, but it was not reversed. And so there was not an appreciation going down. Consequently, then that's that's on the racial issue. Now, if you add gender to that, imagine women trying to integrate genderally into a male space, but we don't integrate to them. Do you know what I'm saying? Imagine, I mean, just consider that, you know? Like men don't have to have empathy in society. Now, granted, emotional intelligence says that you should. Yes, that's the conversation <laughs> we're on right now. What, what but by and large, yeah, By and large, was, that's not the standard. What he was saying, Tabitha, is that he expects these things, but just not in the church. Um, you know, but for the reasons you explained, um, it's it's almost naive to not expect yes. it in the church. Um, I, I, as it's, much it's as you want to believe, and it's detrimental. Ooh, it is because then you set yourself up. Because then you're then you're living in a cognitive dissonant state. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? There's an evil, yes, and in order but you're to remain then here, the perpetrator. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Then we all become complicit in the perpetration. There you go. Because what you're doing is you're saying to the person that that breaks the mold and speaks out. So to the the me's of the world, to other people we know who have broken out and said, "Hold on, this is happening to me." Now we can talk about famous cases like Ravi, Ravi Zacharias. Yeah. Oh yeah. How many women did it take till he died? 
And then the fullness comes out because the system says, yeah, but the church is separate. We don't, that's the lie, isn't it? The church is, church is under God. We don't do that. So of course, for the woman that breaks the mold and says, no, this is happening to me. The abuse that's labeled on top of her is, is detrimental to her well-being. She leaves sometimes with by the skin of her teeth with her sanity intact but oftentimes needing huge amounts of therapy huge amounts of of trauma therapy huge amounts of of love to be put in because you know to the young boy that was abused to the young girl that was abused to those things that happen in our system we say no way because we're under god we're not like the world we're under god we're but we're the same system we're built from that that ground up and the thing is, and because, that's the challenge. Because it's coming from the church, it's, it's worse. Because now, because when you do expect it from the world, you have your guard up, you you have your shield up, you you're, you're not let down, right? You 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 see it coming. Wolf meets wolf, right? But when you're in the church, you put your guard down. You're a sheep, right? You're 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 exposing yourself. You're vulnerable to these people, and it, it and and now when something bad happens, it's like God. Like I put my guard down for you, yeah. and this is what you yeah, allow and, to and happen. That's where to the, right, and that's what you're always trying to to really the impact it has on someone's spiritual development is you can't put you can't put an amount on that. Like you can't say if they come out believing in God, it's a miracle. Mm because the anger they have towards a god that would allow that system to exist even though of course we know it's the people that do the sin even though we know that but we the ex the theological uh, fallacy that we've made is we've equated god allowing something to happen as god condoning something to happen yeah I mean, god it's, it's, allowing it's, you to have your free will so therefore he should take it away to save me yeah but it, it's, it's the bargain you make right when you when you come into the church you're saying, God, I'm coming here for you. I'm not coming here for the people. I'm coming for you. And so you have to protect me, right? When I put my guard down and, 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 and I, and I turn the blind eye to certain red flags that would normally trigger certain things, I'm going to refrain from doing that for you because this is your house, right? And so when something bad happens, you're not looking at the people because you didn't make the deal with the people. You made the deal with God. Yeah. And so, yeah, but yes, I mean, to you, to your credit, it is, it is, um, theological fallacy. Uh, hold up, hold up, real quick. You said his Pat, you never done. <laughs> uh -huh. You do me a favor and just talk a little bit about because you said you came back cautiously, which means yes. you came back carefully. Yeah. Emphasis on the word care. Yeah. Would you kind of talk about because of because in order because because if you're not getting the care that you need from the organization, but you're yeah. still in association at some level you're getting care from somewhere yeah, yeah. could you talk about that for a little yeah, bit yeah so i yeah so i think what's really important to note is that there are amazing people that go to church really amazing people people with talents that that just go beyond the average person who can who can who are trained but also can love in ways that are, are liberating. And I think that, that while I can talk about the systemic issues, I can also talk about the relational issues. You know, I, I got involved with different projects. I didn't get involved with the institution during that period. I never joined back, my membership stayed where it was. It never moved again 
I just left it in that place and I just let it stay where it was. I was not trying to get back involved in a church institution. But with the people, you know, we found a phenomenal amount of resources and help available through relationships I had with, with church members who maybe suspected, maybe heard something and would love me through would give me tools, would give me books to read, would help me find the education I needed in order to heal, um, would see, you know, I had a reputation at that point for being really ice queen, like you were really standoffish, blah, blah, blah. But very few people knew the reasons behind why I was like that. Very few people actually knew. It was just, you know, she turns up to events and she's one of those ice queen girls, look at her standing on the side, blah, blah, blah. But they don't know the hurt you're carrying that's led you to the place where I'm not talking to all you people. God, I don't know you. I know what play, I know what pain you're planning to inflict on me. I ain't going there. Like I'm not trying to, you know, put myself back in that position again but I know that there are people within the system who can be helpful who can uh who use their their education use their skills use their love for good and that are very helpful in her and 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 have been instrumental in me getting through um to where I am today you know they they've helped me with books that I should read they've helped me with just hit me up to different techniques, different language that I should investigate, different ways I should reading. And because most people know me to be quite well read and, and academic and loving, you know, kind of studying, that really helped with that journey. Um, but I think the most, the thing that has carried me through, especially that into my late 20s, by the time that kind of comes to full fruition is, is my late 20s when the whole thing is kind of really behind me, is the fact that I had a relationship with God and that I found my feet with God. That's what really carried me through. Um, oh. And I had amazing friends that helped me with that. I, I wanna, I'm, I'm glad we're, we're talking about, that. that's a great segue because um, I think was it Lawrence who posted earlier, a friend of ours named Lawrence posted something earlier that I shared on my page that um, leaving the church is different from leaving the body of Christ. There's, there's a big yeah. difference. Um, and denominations don't want you to to make that distinction because they want you to feel yeah. like they have they control the door to the body of Christ. You know, yeah. um, can you elaborate on how even that um, uh, message is communicated indirectly, you know, implicitly, and the damage that that has on people and towards the whole PTSD? Well, I spoke earlier about the the Seventh Day Adventist Church. Yeah, in particular, and talking about the fact that they have this thing called the truth. Um, and so when you have a particular denomination that believes they are the truth, <laughs> the remnant, the truth yeah. is them, the remnant, oh. the truth, the thing, oh. um, you have you have a trauma to leave. You have a real challenge to leave, because if I leave, I'm in the wrong. Mm. I'm in the untruth. I'm in the not the lost. Mm. I'm in the, the other. And the other has always been spoken about badly. And, and Adventism is not peculiar in this way. All of the denominations have this. Mm. All denominations believe they're the right one. Um, it's part of the structural system to keep power and to keep money and to keep all of those other things that we that, mm. that people love. Um, power being the love of money being the root of all evil, they say. Something like that, I think it was. But um, when you have that belief system, that theology, that the body of Christ is particular to a denomination, particularly to any denomination, any structure, what you are effectively saying is that Jesus is here and out there is no Jesus. Mm. So when you leave, you're on your own. You have no family. 
So the only way I can do this is, is how I teach young people. So how I teach young people is slightly different. When a young person comes and says they want to be baptized to me or they want Bible studies, I always tell them this. There is a power in being a Christian. Wherever you go in the world, you will have home. No matter where you are. Because if I'm a Christian and I get stuck in, in Ghana, I'm going to any Christian denomination. Say I'm a Christian and they will take me up as family doesn't matter the denomination because that's that is the body of christ wherever i go i can find family but wherever i go the family will be dysfunctional and have issues <laughs> right that's just that's the reality families are dysfunctional and have issues so what i don't teach is that you can only go to your own so understand when I'm teaching a young person, what do I say to them? You're going to travel away from university. You're going to go to a town. You may leave church. You may find yourself in trouble. Go to church. I don't care the denomination. I don't care the, like, I'm not trying to mm. go find yourself a grandmother in the church. Mm. Go sit with that grandmother and let her love you through it. Mm. She right. will give you her network. Mm -hmm. She will be your grandparent. God, trust me, God has grandmothers everywhere yes, right he, mm. he has them everywhere in every denomination there are grandmothers and mm. we all need a grandmother contrary right. to american culture which idolizes youth the truth is we all need grandparents and they right? all want to feed you they want to feed you listen you'll never go hungry a day in your life with a grandmother praise god hallelujah mm. <laughs> hallelujah your child will never be without a candy a day in your life without a grandmother, but, but, right? But think, think of all the different ways that's reinforced even when it comes to dating and marriage like, you know, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. You know, you know, even though we have the same divorce rate within believers, <laughs> that's for some reason it's still there's, Yeah, because there's a lot of poor theology. And I think this is where the rubber meets the road. We have not unpacked our poor theology. We have mm. taken on. And so you spoke about um, uh, right at the beginning, you asked me a question. Now, let me see if I can remember this question, because you talked about the systemic issues and how um, things arise in those issues. And that the Seventh-day Adventist church is not a church that has that kind of in their theology about anti-racism, etc. That was the point. Actually, not true. Actually, strangely, not true. We're one of the few churches that technically would have a prophet that spoke out against these things. So, so right? it's not gonna work. But, right, let's, let's go there. But, go so go. let's just let's just let's just let it yeah. let's let's deal with it. So let's how did on. the prophets speak about these things? Now she wasn't perfect, she didn't speak on it perfectly, she got issues, yeah. She's a product of a time, okay. Mm. But she did speak out against, and she did have lots of writings that talks about if the slave is not free, if the black person is not free, then none of us are free. This is not how it works. So she has those statements. But how did her overriding message? not become that but become something that upheld the system who's in control of the distribution of her information thank you very much white men and there is the answer to your problem that's the answer it's not that there aren't people within the system i'm not saying that lng white has doesn't have her challenges and issues i'm not saying the founding fathers aren't what they are they are who they are right we have our issues Every denomination has its issues, but there are people within the system who've had the loud voice, who've done the speaking up, who've had the megaphone. But how does Martin Luther King Jr. become a postage stamp every year for, oh, you shouldn't protest like that because Martin Luther King Jr. said blah, 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 blah. Because who's in control of the narrative? Because we're all as black people saying, he didn't say that, you know, I mean, he said it, but he didn't say it like that. Come on now. 
but we're not in control of the narrative. And the more we think that these people are doing it in our best interest, the less in control of the narrative we are. Mm. So when it comes to a church institution, so if I talk about my particular denomination, which is the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which is born and bred in American craziness. Sorry, y'all. I like you, but, you know, country's a little, a little got, got little issues, got a little, few little issues there. So it's steeped in that. Just a, So it's born raised steeped in that that's the time it was born in it was it's in that its world headquarters still sits in that craziness am i really expecting that the white men that lead that church are going to have my best interests at heart living in europe as a black woman they don't care about me they care about my tithe they don't care about me no let me know but do you see what i mean who's who has the narrative I need my job, people. Don't sack me. No, <laughs> no, but you know, like who has the narrative? They're not going to see me. I'm not on their radar. Who can you see? I, as a person, will only see who I see. Now, since a little girl, I've been trained to see everyone. That's my training. But that's not how we are as people. We're only trained to see those that we see. That's so, it. With your perspective, right? Um, which is a wide range and very objective perspective on, um, on the institutions, um, specifically the Seventh-day Adventist institution as well, race, class, gender, all of that. How is it that you, know, you started attending cautiously um, at one point and are now a pastor within that same institution? Please, <laughs> please help the people out on that one. What happened? Come back for the grace of God. I want to share this about myself too. So, and we'll get to this in a minute. I hope. Um, but you know, I obviously, me and Jason, we both went to Oakwood together. We both studied theology. We're both pastors uh, for a while. Now I'm, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm a lawyer, but I'm always a pastor. I mean, look, look I'm, I'm up at seven o'clock. This is what I do, right? Um, but for me. Anytime I'm even close to a board meeting, it's a trigger. It's a trigger like, oh, no, I'm not doing this again. I'm not going through this. I'm not playing politics. I'm not going to make you think the idea is yours just so it can get through a committee. I'm not doing it. I'd rather leave, start my own thing, you know, like almost if I didn't create it, it's not good. Like, I don't even want to mess with it because it's got all this other stuff, you know, mixed in. So you... How do you get past all of that? And now you are actually a pastor. In, <laughs> in the, the organization, in the institution. Yes, you you're, you're back to mixing Antoine the Kool-Aid. PTSD. <laughs> like, you start describing how you itch when you get near a board meeting. You got PTSD, man. That's, that's, that's straight, straight up. Uh, you've been in one too many of those ones. No. Well, I, I think that it's really important to say that I'm called to ministry. And I'm very clear about that. So where that ministry takes me, where God takes me is where God has taken me. And at this point, he's landed me here in the Netherlands, working with these three churches um, and doing my ministry here. Where that takes me next, only God knows. Um, and I have given my life to God to do that with. Um, and so how do I end up working in the institution? Well, I mean, this is a question I get asked frequently because I'm a woman. So... Tabitha, you know, uh, you know, you're a pastor, you're a female pastor. Um, how that working out for you? <laughs> what, what, what's been happening in your life? How are you doing with that? Especially post San Antonio, which was a big mm. conference we had around the world. Yay, us as a church sitting down and discussing 
women's ordination as a non-controversial issue at all, right? Um, how are you doing? How did you do this? What is your calling? And a lot of people, so I get two sets of people that ask me, people who are like, how you do that? Seriously, how, what does your calling look like? Because we're genuinely interested to see, we see the anointing, we see God with you, we want to know. And then I get the other side that says, justify yourself. Explain, because I know God never called you. So explain mm. yourself. So those are the two times the question gets asked. And the answer is the same regardless. Because of God, I am here. Um, when I got called into ministry, I was attending church and I was involved in projects, but I wasn't uh, in, in particular ministry or doing something in leadership in a church building. I was just attending church. And I was doing my own stuff in my own life and getting on with myself and having the time of my life. Right. And I was just dealing with God and my relationship and taking it day by day. And in that, I was working as a teacher and I was like, OK, God, I'm not doing the thing. I feel you calling me. I feel you telling me I need to do something. So I had started looking for teaching jobs around the world. I was like, maybe I should go work in a poor community somewhere and help them learn. And this is this is good work. You know, I'm a good Christian kid. I know that you're supposed to go do mission. <laughs> so I'm like trying to figure out a mission field I should go to. I'm trying to do that. And I called uh, one of the one of the closest pastors I have in my life at that point who um, had stuck with me through all of this um, and was a really great pastor, a really great mentor. And I called him and I said, I really need help because I feel lost and I, I don't know what I should do and I need to do something. You know, I'm in my late 20s now. Clocks are ticking. Everybody expects me to be sorted, buying houses and doing stuff. I was never going to get married and have kids. So ironically, I do both of those. But, um, you know, I was like, I need to do something with my life. Everyone around me is getting settled and doing stuff. What should I do? I should go off and travel. You know, that's my idea. So I sit down with this pastor and I have what can be described as a very intense spiritual outer body experience. He sits down, we sit down at a, a local cafe, I'm sitting on the outs, we're sitting outside, we order our hot chocolate, and he says, okay, tell me. And I went, how do you become a pastor? And as the words left my body, I stepped out too, because I was like, what are you doing, girl? You ain't meant to be no pastor. Are you insane? What is wrong with you, Jesus? And I'm having this moment, looking this man dead in his eyes, like, in shock, like, wide-eyed, like, this is insane what I just said. Who said that? I would not say that. Now, I should mention at this point that lots of people had said, you should, you should try pastoral ministry. You're such a good leader. You should do that. And I was just like, no, old are pastors. Men are pastors. And no disrespect to y'all, but you're boring. Mm -hmm. I'm a fashion forward, fly, pretty girl. I don't want to be no pastor. Are you insane? That could be boring and old and gray. I mean, who does that? I was not interested at all. In being a pastor so when it came out of my mouth it literally is like the holy spirit was like you are going to have this moment with him he literally without batting an eyelash said oh that's really good here type of that and he pulled out of his bag the brochure the the information for the person everything i said how did you know what i was going to say i didn't know what i was going to say he said god told me you were going to be a pastor here here is the information it's time for you to go mm. this man is expecting your phone call i literally I had to just sit silently and drink hot chocolate for the rest of that conversation because I didn't say a word. I was like, this is insane. Who does that? God called me to pastoral ministry. God wanted me to be there. So then I had to figure out how do I get over the PTSD? How do I get over the people? How do I get over this? Like, how do you work for the institution? Is this a good idea that 
this person who's been through all of this goes into pastoral ministry how do I deal with that mm-hmm. um and that for me has been a journey it's been a journey because one thing I was very clear of is I was not going to tolerate injustice I was never going to tolerate it I'm mm-hmm. never going to tolerate a young woman coming into any place that I am and saying she's been attacked and then people attacking her I'm always going to be on her side I'm not going to be that person anytime I hear sexism I'm going to stand on it I'm not going to allow that in my presence so you see the problem that's coming right how do you stay employed with that mouth that's not gonna work you can't just keep mouthing off and telling people and whatever and for a while it goes really well I work for the institution not as a pastor but as a communications director and things are going well but I'm working in what they would call a white arm. This is not my description. This is somebody else's. This is the London description of the place that I work for. You're in the white region of the church. And nobody knows who I am. They don't know who my mama is. They don't know my family. They never met my sisters. They don't know that I'm actually a black person who I think the American term is can pass. It's a passing black person. Mm, yeah, 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 right? yeah, yeah. They don't know that. They just see she's other. And in, and in the UK, you have to understand the other can be okay, but it's not perfect, like it's not white. So that I get treated like other, but I don't get treated like black mm-hmm. until I get married. And my mother walks me down the aisle and my sister is behind me as the bridesmaid. and My entire black family show up mm-hmm. onto the campus and the bubble is burst. Mm. oh she's really other she ain't one of us at all Mm. and so it hits the fan so when I announce my pregnancy uh we are made uh I'm made redundant immediately um and I was we were made homeless because my house and my job were linked Mm. and so the option to become a pastor was taken from me in that moment Mm. um the institution bit back and said no we, we don't do that we don't, we don't, we don't do loud outspoken. It's okay. You're outspoken and you're other, you're outspoken and you're black. Oh no, we go put that in your place. You don't do that around here. Mm-hmm. So you're standing up for the black women. You're standing, oh, because you're one of them. Oh no, then we go just put you in the same category and off you go. So I was the first of many black women to leave that institution. Um, and, and they have historical issues. And so things happened. Um, and I was out of employed pastoral ministry for, a number of years and I went independent mm. and I did me I said God called me to be a pastor he called me into ministry so you God tell me what to do go on then tell me I, I'm not going to back down from what you called me to do just because the institution hurts and I'm not going to lie there were many a night spent crying when you realize that the options this is the second time you're taking somebody from church to court mm. There's a second time you're going to have to go through this. The first time you lost your entire church family. The second time you're losing your job prospects. Your whole career is just gone. I haven't even been been employed yet as a pastor. My whole career was gone. My home was gone. My life before that had gone. My husband was studying at the time. He had to give that up. You know, everything was gone. And now you're on your own with a baby, something you didn't think you were going to be doing with your husband. And you had to look around and say, now what? And I said to God, okay, you brought me here. You told me I had to do ministry, show me. And so I have the online pastor profile, which everyone knows me for ministry. Um, and we have all of the stuff that comes with that blogs, blogs, articles, YouTube site, Facebook site, all the full nine yards in which we help people who are marginalized, who don't have a church to go to, who don't have a pastor, who have been burned and they 
ask me questions and they seek me out and I have helped hundreds of people over the years to find peace with Amen. their path in the church until I eventually got employed because you know you need to pay bills right mm. so <laughs> so I got employed again um and when I you know it's a funny story because when I went for my interview um they they asked you the questions you know why should we not hire you and I said oh because I don't take rubbish so this is what happened at my last employer and that was the church so I, I took them to court so if you do the something I'm going to do the same to you mm. and the guy very gently leaned forward and he said you know that's going to stop us from employing you and I said that's okay I don't need you mm. God's called me I don't need you mm. because I need you to be sure of the fact that I am not going to tolerate that with me and my presence anymore I have been hurt I have been burned I have watched the building come down I have watched people put scars on me that I don't want and I will not tolerate seeing it being a complicit to it being a party to it not going to happen and so I stand against that and I guess people know that from far and wide mm. Mm that's how you get employed by the church and that's how you stay employed by the church for the wow. time being i guess <laughs> your, hus your husband's hilarious he said pastors don't get paid enough to pay bills <laughs> <laughs> well there's that but you know <laughs> we, we make it somehow but yeah man yeah. um so you're back and you told them what to expect and and they, yeah. they accepted it I, I get that maybe maybe my ptsda is a little worse than yours because you still got church meetings um, and you still have to deal with, yeah. um, and, and you mentioned something, you're not going to tolerate injustice. Um, but do you feel, especially given the church um, governance structure, that you really even have the power to check injustice as pastor? Or is yeah. that, elder, you know, or your, your, yeah. your board of elders and, you know, that have that power? How, how, do, you, how do you do that? Yeah, there, there has to be a certain amount of dissonance that I have to have, of course. I can't change the entire structure. Mm. There are some people who are really glad about that now. They're, they're sitting relieved that Tabitha doesn't have that kind of power. They're like, oh, <laughs> praise God, hallelujah. <laughs> Jesus knows she'd probably burn the whole institution down. You know, they're all like, Woo, we would be scared if she had that kind of power. So I can't change the entire institution. What I can ensure is that if you come to a church that I pastor, that is not an environment where you would find that. I can ensure that my employers know, as I'm doing at the moment, anti-racism work with them, that this is not something I tolerate from my colleagues. I don't tolerate these kind of racist jokes and things being, it's not, it's not okay. It is not okay. And I can't change the entire institution, but I can definitely shine a light in my corner and put it on bright enough that I'm sure I'm jeopardizing myself in the process, but I'm not really bothered about that. What, what, what do you, how do you, how do you, remain unbothered knowing oh. change the whole system because to me i feel like that would um your husband got the message <laughs> to me i feel like um that would drive me crazy the dissonance you described like yeah how, you have to you i, I would say you know it's i say dissonance but actually it's an acknowledgement mm -hmm. so i'm very honest i believe that one of the things that we've lost over time in christianity is truth so I, I know there's some churches that claim they are the truth and they have the truth, but I think we've actually lost truth. So when somebody comes to me and starts to point out all the things wrong with the system, I'm like, tell me about it. How should we burn it down? Come on, show me. You got a plan? Let's do it. I'm not going to hide for you. I'm not going to cover it up and say, but 
I'm not going to say yes and, yes, but, oh, oh, but did you see? No, this is what we are and this is who we are. Within that system, there are people like Dr. O'Rourke and yourself and others who are shining the light and saying, we don't stand for this and beginning that education process. Um, and I once heard a really powerful speech given by a woman who's a Mormon of all things. And she was asked why she's fighting for gender equality within the Mormon faith. They're like, surely just leave. Like, this is better. And she says, yeah, but who's, <laughs> right? Like, surely. And you know how judgmental we Christians are about Mormons. Yeah, right? So yeah. you understand that surely you should just come over to another side. And she said something really profound. But who is going to fight for the women who don't know that are in the system? they're inside the system they don't know that it's hurting them they haven't realized the full extent of the pain and the injuries that they're taking on who's going to fight for them who is going to stand up to that and so she does and she takes the abuse that she takes as a result uh, and i can only say this i can only say the same i can't change the entire system i can't but if everybody just walked out and was like well we'll just close the door behind us there is a whole heap of people who are being burnt and who are being hurt that no one is speaking for, that no one is advocating for. And not everyone has the strength or the gifting or the calling to do that. That just may not be your calling. And that's okay. Fight from your corner. Do your bit from where you are. You don't have to be inside to fight. Yeah. But for me at this point, <laughs> it is an inside fight. Right? Yeah, Morpheus. <laughs> 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 yeah bless him yes, but, um, Morpheus. <laughs> there we go from inside the system but you do I, for me it's there yeah. are many many ways to skin a cat and I you know I'm really clear that God has called me into ministry mm -hmm. what that looks like on a day-to-day -day basis may change and be different you but know is, what has is, come forward is different is there something to be said about the fact that Christ um did not become a Pharisee he did not become a priest in order to reform um, the lost sheep, you know, uh, in order to reach the lost sheep of Israel. I don't even think his goal was to reform the, the Jewish faith at that point, as much it was, as it was to reveal God to the lost sheep, to people who were prepared to hear him, right? So um, uh, how, how, how is that different from what you're doing? Or is it different than what, from what you're doing? Well, I think we should hold up Jesus for what he is, but also be clear that everybody has a different calling. Was Peter's calling the same as Jesus's calling? No, right? Yes. Like that's not, if Peter did it, was Paul's calling the same as Peter's calling? Oh, absolutely not. Yeah, yeah. Did James have to go through the same thing that Peter and Paul did? No way. Mm -hmm. We're all called into ministry and we should reflect that within the corner that within which we are. My corner happens to be the Dutch Union of the Seventh-day Adventist Church right now. Mm. And within that, I'm really clear and I'm very passionate about the fact that I can affect change in these ways. Now, not everyone's going to come along with me and that's OK. That's your choice. But mm. I'm not going to let you be racist in my presence. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not going to let you have those moments where you're sexist in my presence. I'm not going to allow you to abuse abuse victims in my presence. Like I'm not somebody should be standing against that it shouldn't just be in my opinion that we all just walked out just because jesus didn't do something at that point he had other things on his mind that he was doing he came as a marginalized person to reach marginalized people right and to shine that light of god so he came as the product of a teen pregnancy let's 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 call that what that is he was never going to be a pharisee 
Sure. I'm the product of a young pregnancy. She wasn't a teenager. Wow. She would never forgive me for putting that out there. You, you know, and, but and, I'm and not. I, I want to say this too. I was also I also grew up in a single family household um, within the church, and you know, b- being that my mom was a leader um, within the church, I guess helped a lot because they could not yeah. tell sit down or take. She was just not having it. So I think that impact. Yeah. I didn't realize how much that uh, influenced me or could have influenced me. Um, I think the saving grace was my family was the majority, you know, um, in the church. And so, you know, there was strength in numbers. And because my family accepted my mom, she was part of it, um, they almost had to accept us, right? Yeah. But had we been single- Here's a question for you, Antoine. Yeah, go ahead. So your family accepted your mom. Did they accept others like your mom? No, that's the thing. They didn't. No, and not necessarily just my family. I'm talking about the church in general. The church, yeah, the church they did in general. Not accept all the right. single mothers. They right. didn't. Not even close. You can tell the kids who came from the two parent. I never thought of this, but the kids who came from two parent households, they were given position. They were treated as an equal, as someone who we can pass this down to, right? But but everybody else, you know, who didn't come from those stable households, stable households, right? Because you need two people to be stable. Um, they were they were treated like others, um, and, and you really saw that when their children started dating. Yes, yes, the dating is always oh good lord, that will out it every time. You can be wow. okay, like all of the children are cute up until thirteen, right? Because mm. they're all just cute kids. But mm-hmm. as soon as the elders, mm-hmm. the two parent household starts fancy, and the girl from the single parent household or the, whatever, the boy from the single parent, that's when you the, the rubber hits the road. You mm-hmm. were cute as a kid. We mm-hmm. could forgive you as a child. We could even do all sorts of things to ensure your safety, but you weren't gonna marry in here. Mm-hmm. You ain't gonna marry enough in this family and bring your dysfunction over here. Mind mm-hmm. you, your dysfunction is the same, but whatever, you know, we'll just let that go. But you know. And the only reason that exists is because the church is when the church allows themselves to be an extension of the system. That's when that happens. Right. That needs to be acknowledged. I think that's the biggest yeah. takeaway. Yeah, yeah. Jason, and and I think that's something. Yeah, it looks like Jason has a question. Yeah. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, listen, I, 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 today I knew that I was going to be educated. Mm. I knew, I knew that I was going to hear things I had not heard before. I knew, I knew. And so the only thing I wanted to do earlier on was just put out some definitions and statistics. But but she um, she mentioned something a while back talking about um, the, the Mormon lady and how she wants to minister to those who don't even know. I literally saw this morning, literally this morning, a vid um, in Albania of women and men who all agree that, you know, with a with a regular degree of frequency, it is expected and needed for the husband to beat his wife. So those people there, particularly those women, don't they it's a cultural norm that some many of them accept as part of what is expected and appropriate in their home. They have been it literally is the is the best living case to my knowledge right now that I've seen within the last year of Stockholm syndrome. And so now you take that, yeah. you add you add generational, literally, because we were talking about trauma. families, generational mm-hmm. trauma, generational PTSD, generational mm-hmm. abuse, generational moral injury, mm-hmm. and you slap theological armor on it. Mm-hmm. 
that says you have to forgive your abuser and stay in the relationship. And you slap theological armor on it that says you have the truth. And if you leave this organization, you have left God. Mm -hmm. You know That's what I'm saying? Spiritual Stockholm Syndrome. Precisely, precisely. And we have well, a whole host of people across Christendom that are experiencing this and they justify and defend the predators and abusers in our midst. But we have this in a very highbrow way. So now mm -hmm. let me tell you the highbrow way that we have this. I enjoy this one. Okay. Men are the head of the household. I'm sorry, what now? Men are the head of the household. So what is a woman who is a leader, who is educated, who is an accountant, who is able to manage finances more than her husband? What does she have to do in order that he has to be the head of the household? She has to accept a secondary position. She has to lessen herself consistently to ensure that he is the head of the household. And we're talking about no violence. So let's just take the violence out of the equation. It's just a basic theological point that people say, this is a basic theology. Men are the head of the household. So consistently, women who believe that theology have had to lessen themselves every day without in, in minor ways that they haven't even thought about. They are lessening their decision-making ability. They're lessening their power. They're lessening their gifting. They're diminishing their own ability. So now walks in the female minister. Mm. What does it do to all of those women? Mm, mm, mm. It terrorizes them. You're, you're it, like Queen absolutely. You are terrified yeah, because you're, you're, this woman has not diminished herself. How dare she? Yeah. You are not complying with the system. So who is you're the cancer. biggest? You're a cancer. You're right? like you got to get rid of you. We need to go. We need you out. And who's going to be the biggest proponent of getting her out? Women. The, the women. women. The women are going to be the biggest proponent. Why? Because we have consistently lowered ourselves, abused ourselves mentally. Why, why, do, why do you get to be different? Why do you get to let like, go? You're the house slave. I'm in the field. You Come sit down yeah. here, right? Yeah. And it's not even done with, you know, sometimes I say it's not done with malicious intent. The amount of maliciousness that's in it is really vicious. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's because of what have you had to go through to believe this ideology, the Stockholm Syndrome? What have you had to diminish? How much of God have you had to cancel in your head? How many times the Holy Spirit pricked you and you had to just cancel that out and quiet yourself and mash yourself down and break yourself down? You are suffering. Come on, man. Come on. But he's the head of the household. But he's the head of the church because he has to lead. And you have to constantly be less than and lower than. And so we see this very public case with Beth Moore. Beth Moore and the Southern Baptists. Absolutely. Beth Moore has been the exception to the rule for a long time. But we all as women leaders knew her time was coming to end that. Like that, we were like, man, she's holding on in there. Like she's, she's, she's teaching in a very public way. Bless her, she's still going. Until she stepped on the corn that hurt the most. Mm -hmm. White people y'all are racist once she mashed that corn that would have pulled down the whole entire system you got to go and they came for her who's coming for her predominantly you would have the women under the leadership of the men who are the head of the household she would have been receiving and i know this for a fact why do i know this because i've received those letters received letters from women you are Jezebel, you are Bathsheba, you are the devil, you are the demon, you are a temptress, you are the da 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 you need to stop, see that outfit you wore, you were trying to do this, you see this, blah blah blah, picking on everything about you, 
because they are so abused and don't even recognize it yet because they're not free mm. because the, and it's a really simple theological thing that causes so many problems but men are the head of this is like accepted in great christian theology everywhere up and down the world men are the head of the household but what do you have to do to be the head of the household how does the woman have to diminish for you to be the head of the household what does she have to do because that means you're in charge of what finances you're in charge of how we discipline our kids you're in charge of how think about all the things that that means in a family situation you all got kids you know what that means yeah. you got to be in everything that you don't even see she's got to be thinking of well i best not i best not my husband wouldn't like it if remember he's ahead of it. all of that affects you as a woman you are so broken down in your mind that you don't even know yet. So we can talk about the Albanian case, but I could take you to any church in any denomination that holds that belief. And I can show you every single woman who is suffering under that system. More, and more they may not even know it. Listen, but more specifically, you don't have to take it to every single church. If you were raised, a, by and large, if you were raised a man, a male in Western civilization, or underneath a colonial education, that is how you run the house. Yeah. And the fact yeah. that I even said you run the house is indicative of the problem. Yeah. That's how you approach life. So listen, I had a conversation yesterday. I had, listen, we had, I had a conversation. I'm not going to mention the people I was talking about. I had a conversation with a lovely couple yesterday. My wife and I were talking to them. And we were talking about some very personal things. My wife was talking to them about how she knows my triggers. And I'm listening to her talk about this in the exact same way that you're describing it. I'm like, my wife knows me, herself, and my kids because she has to. Can I say the same? And do I have to? Is it culturally mm. expected for me to have to? Mm. And I had to be honest about it. The answer is no. Mm. Ouch. The answer is no. Mm -hmm. I mean, in fact, I mean, it's just, let's just be honest about it. In, 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 a, in the male-female relationship, I am part of the problem. Uh, but I think, and I think that that's something that has pitted us, but the, the challenge is that our, and I'm going to say this just as a general sweeping generalization, but our black men, especially as black fathers, have always stood outside the norm of this system. So the statistics tell us whenever they do research about fathers across uh, different uh, races, you know, that lovely social construct, um, that black men are always more involved fathers. They are always come out on the top of the pile. But what's the stereotype that surrounds that? So you've always had to do the work because you knew it was important to be a good father. That's our cultural norm. If you go, if you strip it backwards and backwards and backwards, something has been handed down from generation to generation to generation to generation that slavery could not kill, that diasporas could not kill, that colonialization could not kill, that men should be good fathers. That has been handed down. That is something that has been handed down. So you know that as a black man, you know that. But your entire society tells you to be absent. Your entire society tells you to have multiple children. You're, 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 you are raised in a system that tells you that you're not good at it, that you are, are worthless, that you are, you know, all of these other various terms that we could use for the black man. But instinctively, if you set any black man down in the diaspora, Caribbean, Britain, European, 
African-American, doesn't matter where you are, all of them would instinctively tell you the same thing. It's important to have a good father. Where does that come from? Right, where does that come from? So you know this, which is why you're sitting there going, but I'm part of the problem. Who's not doing that? Mm. Listen, but listen, here's my point. Here's my point. The fact that at the end of these two hours, the conversation turns to you affirming black men is indicative of the issue. Yes, but I think it's important. Yeah, oh, absolutely. But I do think it's important when you put yourself down that we had to just point out that there's a system behind that, right? Because you immediately went, I'm part of the problem. And I'm like, well, yes, but the problem is bigger than you. As a black man, the problem is bigger than you. And and that's something that we have to say all the time. So yeah, I mean, we can turn back to me. I'm okay with that, you know. That's what I'm saying. I want to turn back to Tabitha for a second to pass the purple. Uh, let, let me ask you this because um, you you we talked about um, two weeks ago being silent versus being silenced, right, yeah. by the system, right, um, and and how hard it was for Megan to speak out, knowing that everything she says was misconstrued by the media, etc. Mm-hmm. And um, I almost feel like when you admit to being hurt by the church, you you are automatically your your testimony is diminished. Um, you're discredited in any type of critique that you have towards the church, and it almost calls into question the legitimacy of your gripes, right? Um, and you're almost set aside, like oh no, like she's just hurt. You know, um, a lot of people they leave the church, like you mentioned. Um, they you, you said something. You said they that they leave not for theological reasons, they leave because they're hurt. And so if they do have a theological discussion, um, you know, that's not, that you don't, don't take it at face value because in reality, it's just the pain speaking, right? How do you deal with that? Well, first you have to acknowledge that it exists. Any step towards healing has to begin with knowing what is happening. And so I, uh, I think, I, myself and Jason have had this conversation before I'm very keenly aware that people should be talking about the emotional color that they have what emotional range do you have and how do you inhabit your emotional color right so how do I breathe into step into my emotions and I have in the last uh, 10 years been on that journey of dealing with that and processing that for myself because what I found for myself was that I had identities that masked my emotions so strong black woman identity. I had the angry black woman identity. I had the con- contentious woman identity. You know, you not crying. You just don't, you're always speaking up. You're that woman that's always in a, if there's drama, you're always at the center of it. And I was like, I'm always at the center of the drama or is the center of the drama you bringing it to me? Like, what, what is this here right now? But if I don't know what I'm emotionally dealing with, if I don't actually understand my emotional color, if I'm not in therapy working it out, for myself, then when people come at me, you'll be silenced or silenced. It doesn't make any difference because you're just quiet. You're just quiet because you don't know what's happening. You can't name the things that are going on. And so we do, we had the conversation when when uh, Jason approached us and said, could, could Tabitha come on and talk about all the emotional hurt? There's a lot there. There's a lot there to unpack. We didn't even touch on, you know, the, the pastor that decided that what he would do mm. is... Um, try and stick his tongue down my throat 
we didn't talk about that we didn't talk about the the letters that were written to me trying to campaign to have me out and were written about how i was burning in hell as a female minister we we didn't talk about that there is a lot of hurt there but why do we not have to talk about every single piece of hurt that i've ever been through is because i can use that in the framework within which we're given to say yeah i have my emotional way of dealing with it but here's the framework in which i know it exists also here is the institutional problems that we have that allow this hurt to exist for people like me for other people but i've done the work to deal with my emotional color and range and so what i find is really important is that i show up emotionally not just cognitively not just but i name it when i show up so there was an incident we have um where somebody we were in a colleague's meeting and I won't go into the details because, of course, these are private mo moments. But somebody had said something I found uh, quite racist. It was before your time, Jason. And I stood up and I let rip because, of course, I don't allow that. And I was like, right, you all want to talk about the issue of gender. I'm just going to let rip. And a colleague of mine who is, is a friend, who'd say he's a friend of mine, he messaged me afterwards and he said, don't do that. They're going to call you the angry black woman. I don't want you doing that. Don't be called the angry woman. Stop it. You're not allowed. And I told him to get off my phone. You are being sexist. Mm. I named what you're doing. Because in naming what you're doing, it doesn't have power over me. Say what you have to say. I'm not letting you have power over. I'm allowed to be angry if somebody says something that is hurtful i'm allowed the emotion of anger what i choose to do with it is my choice but i'm allowed to be angry you mm. can't tell me just because there's a there's a moniker given to women that i'm not allowed to have the emotion of anger i must be completely controlled and anger must never leave my body now how unrealistic is that mm. like what is that that's not helpful that's that's harmful in fact and so i began to show up emotionally if i had joy or frustration or anger or whatever emotion it was i began to show up in my full state and say i will demonstrate this and it's become so well known unbeknown to me i didn't i just made the decision a few years ago that this is what i was going to do after somebody told me not to be angry because i found that to be really sexist um that I would just show up and use my full emotional range. And so sometimes you might find that I laugh and I'm happy and I'm joyous and I, I bring people into that. And other times you'll find that I'm quiet because I'm frustrated and there are some issues that need to get worked out. Or maybe I'm louder because I need to hear, have my voice heard against the institutional injustice. Whatever it is, is going to show up in the room. And I'm going, and the minute somebody reacts on the emotion, I'm going to tell you what you are doing and why it's wrong. I'm not going to let you diminish my emotion or diminish my response or diminish who I am by using a, an excuse. Oh, women are emotional. Yes, we are. And so are you. Your response is out of line. Your response is steeped in racism and sexism. Please sit down. And I'm going to do that. But it's become such a sticking point that I went to a female minister's event and ministers I've never met before came up to me and said, we're just so happy that you're showing up emotionally. I was like, excuse you, who are you now? I don't know you. But they were so relieved that somebody was actually al was allowing themselves to demonstrate emotion because it allowed them just a little bit more wiggle room to be happy and not stay in their neutral position. It is unhealthy to think that you can just maintain a non-responsive position. That is not healthy. It does not help. It does not help your pain to heal if you're just. I'm just going to stick in neutral. 
and I'm just not gonna I'm just not gonna let anything bother me because if I stay in neutral everyone's gonna respect me I'm not gonna be labeled you're gonna be labeled regardless you're gonna get labeled cold I've had the label of cold it's not nice you're gonna get labeled as angry I've had the label of angry it's not nice you're gonna be labeled too quiet and allowing injustice how could you not use your voice what what's wrong with you I've been labeled like that it's not nice I'm not taking your labels I'm not doing that. It is, I believe, my God-given, image-bearing, divine image-bearing rights to inhabit the full emotions. If God can say he can cry, I can cry. If God can say he laughed, I go laugh. If God said he hungry, I can get hungry. You know what? That is what I am allowed to do because I am in the image of the divine. I'm not going to diminish myself because in diminishing myself, I'm diminishing you. Yeah. I'm diminishing every other person in the room and I'm allowing a negative, detrimental effect to go on. And so I've had to come to a place, because you're asking me about my healing and how I cope. I've had to do the therapy, do the work, do the reading, mm-hmm. like, and deal with it. And sometimes it means you are alone. And sometimes yeah. it means you don't have no friends. But you know what? It's yeah. okay. That's right. Man, um, we're, 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 we're a little over the two-hour mark, so we, we have to wrap it up, but I cannot let you go without asking one more question. Um, Jason, um, I know I'm hogging it, man. I'm, I apologize, man. It, it, <laughs> I'm good. You know, I'm good. So you've had time, but it's my first time. So, <laughs> so um, I, I, I strongly believe, you know, with every adversity um, is the seed of equivalent advantage right? The Bible says with every temptation, there's a way of escape. Um, How much of who you are today would be present if you had not gone through what you've been through? Um, Make that connection as well. Well, you know, that's a a fascinating question. Because (laughs) You know, I cannot, I am a product of my environment. I, I'm, I am who I am and God gifted me the way he gifted me. So somebody actually asked, so I'll, I'll give you the answer like this. Somebody asked once, um, do you think that you were gifted to, you know, is it bad that you've been going through all of these things? Um, how does, why is God not delivering you from them? And he said, no, 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 you mistake it. God has given me the gifts I have to overcome these things. Mm. I have the gifts I have because he can see through time and know what I'm going to go through. Not because he caused it, but because he knows what I'm going to go through. And I need the gifts in order to get through it. I was gifted a mother who did African-American history in the UK as a single parent, black woman. That's what she studied. And so guess who I was reading at 11? Malcolm X, Marcus Garvey, Martin Luther King. She was not hot on Martin Luther King, I'll give her credit. She was like, it's too pacifist. Let's get the fighters out. <laughs> <laughs> she was always on the fighters side. I think I read more about um, Malcolm X and those guys than anyone else. So you need to read about the Black Panthers. This is this is where we're at. Yeah. Um, so I was reading that from a young age. That was my literature. When I would want to read the teeny books like every other girl, she was like, you reading the babysitters? What now? Stop reading this. Stop reading this. Yeah, of Lysa Men. Here, you know, this book, she just like hand me books, like, okay, you can read one of those trashy books if you get through this. Like, she was like, no, this is not it. So, I'm a product of that. I can't help, you know, I have, I've inhabited that space, um, and it was the seeds that were sown in me. I wouldn't be who I am or where I am without all of that. 
I wouldn't, my voice wouldn't be as strong for justice if it wasn't for the fact that I have seen, witnessed, been a victim of injustice. I wouldn't be so passionate against institutionalization of uh, racism and sexism if it wasn't for the fact that I knew the damage it did. Mm. You know, mm. I can I can speak loudly, shout loudly, because I know how destructive it is from a, an mm. experiential point of view, not just I've seen it, I've experienced it. And I would like to say that everybody should just be like that because everyone should be against it, absolutely. But when you've when you've experienced it, you've got skin in the game, mm-hmm. right? I've I've mm-hmm. I'm not. It, it would pain me. I would be devastated if one of my young people went through what I went through on my watch. Mm-hmm. I would sit down. I would be like, okay, I'm gonna have to sit down. I don't appreciate my own leadership. I gotta have to sit down. This is not acceptable. And I would have to take that fully on my own shoulders because it would hurt in a way that it's not going to hurt for someone else. In a way that, you know, because you're going to be like, oh, okay, something happened. So, so I didn't expect to be saying this, um, but it's almost as if, um, like when you say God gave that man the grace or the, the, the power, the courage to get through whatever he was going through. Um, so that's almost a gift. It's almost as if, church hurt hashtag church hurt is a gift right when, when james says um consider it joy your various trials it's a joy because it produced this that we have today in pastor purple um it, it can be seen as a seed um you know of something powerful um you know to be able to identify with people who are going through that and to be able to liberate them on the back end um and maybe maybe that's a good way to frame it. Maybe if you think about it that way, it can lessen the PTSD. I don't know, Jason. What? what? <laughs> I see Jason's face is so not convinced by the argument. He's like, hmm. I'm not gonna say. I, you you will never hear me say that abuse is a gift. Mm. Ever. Okay. I will say that people have gifts within them that allow them to be resilient through abuse. Mm-hmm. The abuse itself, I will never say that God gifted sure, you with abuse. Sure, that's a sure. little masochistic. And sadistic, <laughs> I'll never say that. I'll never say that. Well, you know, it's, it's um, the theology that allows it to stand. And I think that's why we're, you and I had the same reaction. I was like, no, it's not a gift. No, 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 no. Mm, because it's, no. The, it's that poor theology that allows it to stand. Well, you know, God gifted you with this bad situation so you mm. could be stronger. What? God didn't make this person like do the, this wicked thing. He did the wicked like the thing. Logic. It's like the argument, if God brings you to it, he'll take you through it. It sounds cute, but the implications but that God brought somebody to be abused to be beaten, to be sexually assaulted and he brought see that that's a whole other conversation i don't know if we got time for that (laughs) that would be on my mind too okay we ended that conversation and went he don't do that (laughs) the spirit led christ into the wilderness to be tempted right like so i mean i i I feel like um there's multiple layers to this that is just beyond us living in time and space um but I mean, you know, one, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe we should open that door. Go ahead, clean it up, Jason. Well, so I think that there is a difference just to your point, Antoine, since you brought up Christ in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. A temptation is not abuse. Let's be clear. Temptation is not abuse. And what Wanting we were to eat the chocolate about, cake is not the same as someone shoving a chocolate cake down my throat. 
That's a very good point. Force feeding me chocolate cake is not the same as putting chocolate cake in front of me and, and you're right. So just to clarify, today we were not talking about temptations. We're talking but, about but, but, the thing, but, the th but the thing is with the, with the with foreknowledge, right? Knowing that someone's going to stuff the cake down your, your throat and to put you in front of the chocolate cake. I mean, that's still, I mean, Essentially, the right. Same. So, right now, well, this comes down to a discussion of free will. So don't take you, no, brother. No, 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 a divine justification for abuse, trauma, genocide, mm -hmm. enslavement, and everything. And therefore we end up with a divine causation right. of those things. And so we end up with a Cal listen, we end up with a Calvinistic perspective that says slavery is a gift to blacks. Mm -hmm. Genocide is a gift to Jews and Native Americans. Mm -hmm. Where it we second class citizenship and abuse was a gift of God to the to 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 uh, the people in India, right? That's where it ends up with. So we have to be very clear. Very clear. We talk about yeah. what God knows, right, and how God engages in a world that still has the ability to choose and the laws of consequence. We have to remember this fundamental fact. I'm done after this. The primary identifying characteristic of God is love. If God is love, by definition, God in himself is relational. If God in himself is relational, by definition, he must be plural. By biblical definition, if God is relational and God is love and God is plural, God is free to choose to receive or to reject. And in making humanity in his image, he created humanity with the freedom and therefore the consequences of choice. Even he can know all of whatever, but God's love does not allow him to override freedom and consequence. You know, and I'm, I'm glad I'm glad you said that because I mean, this was um, a tangent in my mind when it first came out of my mouth um, and I didn't want to open that door. But I think you know, without all the flowery, you know, Calvinistic labels, most people in these circumstances who are going through church hurt are having these deep theological questions and, and, and ideas yes. floating around. And so maybe it's good that you just said what you just said. Um, you know, maybe it needs to be reiterated. Pastor Purple, do you want to elaborate on what he just said? Because I think, you know, to be honest, like you said, um, it's perpetuated because we believe this on some level yeah on some on some level we're taken in somehow by this idea constantly that we are wretched not that we're the divine image but that we're wretched and so that we deserve what we get because we are wretched and nothing good comes from us because we are wretched we believe that theological idea instead of basing our image on the divine image of god Instead of basing our value on the divine image of God, we base this, base this on a couple of texts that talk about our wretchedness and how we are lost. And we take them, pluck them out of their context, rip them wholeheartedly and shove them into a new thing that says humans have no value. 
and we're just pawns in we that's really where we're going with this we're just pawns in the greater scheme this is how you end up with the calvinistic view instead of saying which is what i've said throughout the conversation will continue to say we have choice it's not god who did this to me it's the humans stood right there i know who hurt me i can see them I look in your eyes. I know what pain you've caused. I know exactly what it is. I know how that has damaged. I'm not blaming God for that. That's you. Because at which point should he have ended your free will at the same point he ended mine? Mm. Right? And this is how it, and for women particularly, this is one of the most painful things that when we go through pain as women, that hits home to us for the girl that goes free. And it always happens like this. There's always a story of how a young woman was walking through a park late at night and she prayed and God saved her. Mm. But what happened to the woman that came after her that wasn't saved? Mm. Wasn't God with her? Did he not save her? Did mm. he not help her? Why wouldn't he listen to her prayer? And instead of correcting that theological position, which is there were two women walking through the park and God was with both women, but there was evil standing in that park waiting. One evil person who wanted to do harm. And this one escaped by the skin of her teeth. And this one got abused by that evil. We put that up on God and say, God saved her and not me. Because we have allowed women and we have allowed this theology to exist that pits us against one another and says, well, God must love you more than me because you must have been more faithful because you must have been you must have prayed harder you must have had more so why would but god what have that way? because because you can handle more what about that one but here but no. listen that, that's trash that's mm. trash and i'll tell you why i'll tell you why that's trash it's trash because anybody is capable of enduring anything at any given point in time so like anybody is capable of falling yeah. for anything at any given point in time any given what point we in time. see actually if you look at the gross the the breadth of human history is God with people in the most perilous and disastrous times, giving them the resilience to endure and come out. That's what we see throughout most of history, most of history. In fact, in fact, what we find is God with people enabling them to endure the most wretched existences. Hebrews 11 can bother to list the faithful that God did great things through. It gives you a list of about 20 people. It doesn't bother to list the people for whom God did nothing but endure with them. It doesn't give you a numerical quantity. And I, and I think it's really important to point out that when God gives, when the list of faithful people in Hebrews is given, if we could for a minute, this is just some homework for your listeners. If you know the, the, the Bible, just go back and actually look at their stories, not what you've been told, but look at their stories. These people had issues. Mm. These people had problems. These people were often the perpetuators of some issues. These people were often the perpetuators of violence. And if we just look at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, I mean, like we could talk about some people who perpetuated some stuff. When God calls them faithful, he's like, I ran the course with them and they finally turn around and now they're faithful. Right? I can save anyone is the text. Like I can, I can talk with you and you can finally get there. So you who's sitting in your squalor, who's dealing with your issues, who's really mm-hmm. challenged, I can save you too. Mm-hmm. That's not a list to hold up and say, look how perfect they are. That's a list to hold up and say, dear Lord, you had to work hard on those people. May God, you know what? Help me not to be one that you have to list because you had to work that hard on me. 
Yeah. Hey, right? Hey, I, I, need, I, need, I need to hit an organ. I need to hit an organ. I need to hit an altar. I need to. <laughs> Sheesh. But yeah. But un, I think it's important to unpack some of these theological fallacies because they do mm. more harm. When we talk about the, if we bring it back to the conversation we've had about. He'll, church he'll church. never give you more than you can bear. Right. So, so there. Lord help us. If I'm dealing it's a lie with from the pits of devil because. He'll never give you more than you can bear. Of course, he'll either give you one talent, two talents, five talents, or ten. That's what you can bear. It's not talking about, I'll give you this trauma, that trauma, or this trauma. It's talking about, I will give you the talents, and that's what you can handle. So you with your one talent, be grateful that you have your talent. You with your ten talents, who can do all these wonderful things, be happy with your ten. He gave you what you can bear. It's not, I'm going to give you this trauma, that trauma, this, what kind of sadistic God are we serving? Like, let's unpack some of these. And I keep saying, and keep trying mm. to challenge people to just, let's think about what we say when we say this, because mm. you're causing trauma to the two women. The mm. two women go through the park at the night. One mm. escapes and one is abused. Mm. Whose fault is it? It is the man who did the abuse. So now... The woman who left the park is feeling guilty because somehow she miraculously prayed it through. Somehow she managed to escape. Mm -hmm. Can you all hear me okay? Somehow yes. she's having, you know, this and she feels guilty because why sh should I have prayed for my sister too? Why me? Why did I escape? What should I have to do? Now she's racked with guilt because she feels like she owes someone something because her life was saved. And the woman is being double traumatized who has been abused. Not oh. only did you get abused by this person, but it was God's fault. Mm. So now God is abusing me and the person is abusing mm. me and everyone's blaming me outside. I'm not abused just once. I'm abused twice. I'm abused three times because now I should have prayed harder. I should have had this. The church needs to correct these theologies because they damage the church can no longer hide behind the fact that we're fighting for civil rights. It has to understand that we're fighting to undo the injustice of the system. And where that system pervades, we have to, for the sake of the two women walking through the park, who are going through the trauma, we have to undo the poor theology that says one of them escaped by the skin of their teeth because God loves them. And the other one, she mustn't have prayed hard enough mm. or you know what, she's just a stronger kind of person. Or she's she's tough, she can get through it. What are you talking about? Are you going to say that to the three-year-old girl that was abused in the church backyard by the elder? Are you going to say that about that three-year-old, that they were just strong enough to get through? Let's think about what we say before we open our mouths and project this out into the world. Let's yeah. undo that poor theology and say, oh, hold on. Just because God is with me in it, wailing and crying and gnashing of teeth with me in it, going through this, let's go back and undo the poor theology. Because what we often say is God is the angry justice warrior that's going to kill everybody. But do we go back to Noah's story and say, what provoked God in that story to do what he did? Because he was grieved. Because he was hurt because wow. he grieved with the people who were hurting wow. because it hurt him to see the perfect divine image being destroyed by its own choices mm. it hurt that's what caused the justice to come 
the justice didn't come because he got angry. The justice came because he got hurt. Because what we are doing is we, God is with us in every one of these situations. He's the comforter with us in the situation, holding us, trying to get us through this, while somebody else is exacting abuse upon us. While he has to look at the divine image bearer he's been trying to stop from doing it, who's decided to do the wicked thing. And then we say it's the victim's fault and not the perpetrator. And we blame God. No no more we need to stop with that poor theology and we need to say where god is in all of this when jesus who is the embodiment of god comes down and sits with the marginalized woman who's thrown at his feet and they want her to to be stoned he says and just a slightly right we don't know what he wrote we have many a good sermon written about what he wrote wrote. (laughs) many a good lies been told about what he wrote in the sands but he wrote and when he was finished, everyone was gone. And what does Jesus do? Where are your accusers? Where are your accusers? Because Jesus was with her on the ground in the dirt with her. Mm. He didn't stand up and deal with the accusers. He mm. sat next to her in the ground. Mm. He is with the marginalized. He is with the hurting. He is grieving with them. Hallelujah. Think about what his posture was in the ground, in the dirt with her. Hallelujah. Not standing up with the accusers that's where he is with the marginalized and until we undo that poor theology we will continue to have systemic oppression hallelujah and that's where he is with everyone who's been church hurt he's in the ground right there with you comforting you that's powerful he's grieving with you um and um yeah that's who pastor purple man my goodness this is uh Mm, this is a lot. <laughs> well, I'm glad that I could be with you today. So we're going to wrap ah! up now. I'm going to do the job. We're going to wrap up here. It was real nice to talk to y'all. I'm so glad these guys are back in two weeks' time. Don't yeah. forget, Pastor Purple's on this evening on the dark side. You can catch me on yeah, Facebook what, what Live or YouTube um, Live. Can, can your husband put your link in the, uh, in the chat? Put the link in. Dude, put the link in for the, the live stream. <laughs> I don't know what the link is. Oh, please. Oh, he'll put the link in for the chat. We'll do that afterwards. But like, oh, listen, it's been really wonderful to be with you guys. And, you know. Master, can, you, can, you, pray, can you pray for the people? I need a benediction, man. This was. <laughs> All right, let's take some time to pray. And yeah, you got to kiss that baby. He's so adorable. Every time I see that little head, I'm like, bless him. Bless. All right. Let us pray. Hallelujah. Almighty God, we thank you so much. We thank you for your wonderful creation. We thank you for all of the goodness, all of the love, all of the mercy, all of the grace. We thank you that you are with your people. And that when your son came, he came to restore all of us to our divine image rights. But Lord, there are people who will have listened to this who are hurting, who have been through bad situations who have been hurt in ways that are unimaginable that have gone to dark places and have doubted you have been taught things about you that are lies have been taught poor theology that has led them to believe that you have abandoned or forsaken them Mm. so lord i ask that your comforter your holy spirit draws close begin the work of restoration begin the work of healing it is a long way till you can be free 
of all the pain and the hurt, but we know that freedom is your gift to us. We know that peace is your gift to us, that joy is your gift to us, that love is your gift to us. So, Lord, let it flow and abound in every person who is crying out to you to help them in their situation because you are right there with them. Lord, let them see you. Let them feel you. Let them know. Let them experience your presence. And may your healing begin its good work in them. Hallelujah. Lord, for our two brothers that are leading these difficult conversations, we ask a special blessing. May they continue to be open to the Holy Spirit and to learning and to growing and to being pushed and developed in new ways. Lord, may they never be content with thinking that they have the answer, but always seeking to learn more. Help each listener who maybe hasn't experienced this. And for the first time, they're seeing that there's a world of hurt out there that they never knew existed. Maybe there's somebody who's like, colonization has done a bad thing in the world. I never knew. It's done a bad thing to our church. I never knew. Lord, help each person on their journey to open up to your spirits, to your teaching, to your leading, to your learning. And may you rest with them. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful and glorious day across your globe. There will be people who wake up in pain and people who wake up with the blessing of sunshine and beauty and glory. And each one of them will have you with them. So, Lord, we thank you for this day. Yes, Lord. We thank you. And we glorify your name and we praise you and we say thank you. Thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. And Jesus, amen. Amen. My God. Jason, you weren't kidding, boss. (laughs) (laughs) You weren't kidding, bro. This was excellent. Hallelujah. Um. You got you got you got hand clap emojis, Pastor Purple. You got <laughs> yeah, exclamation points. The people were, have been blessed. Um, I, I don't think we've ever gone this far over with a guest. Um, or, we did, but only one other time. Yeah, only one other time. This is that was a, my brother is in the comments, and he said this was excellent. <laughs> Well, I'm really glad. I'm very glad. And of course, it's recorded for posterity. So please share it yes, with your it friends. <laughs> like, oh. share, do the thing. Subscribe, like, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. And we're on podcast now. We're on Spotify. We're on, someone said their brain is bruised. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, time to replay, on, replay. Yeah, yeah. Hey, but sweetie. We're, we're, we're on anywhere podcasts are found. We should be there as well. Um, you know, share it with your people. I think there's a lot of, healing in this conversation um you know um a lot of a lot of hope in this conversation so if you care for your people man put it out there you never know who it can be blessed thank you so much pastor uh, i'm gonna log off of facebook um don't leave tab yeah yeah don't don't leave just yet all right